This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books. 2021 marks 20 years of radical, independent publishing at Haymarket Books. To celebrate two decades of publishing books for changing the world, all Haymarket titles are currently 40% off at haymarketbooks.org. Founded in 2001 with a mission to publish books that contribute to struggles for social and economic justice, Haymarket has now published over 1,000 titles. Ranging from best-selling books about current events to urgent interventions about activist strategy to indispensable histories of past struggles to republications of -of out-of-print classics, Haymarket strives to publish books and contribute to the development of a critical, engaged, international left. Browse Haymarket's extensive catalog, all 40% off through August 15th, at haymarketbooks.org. That's haymarketbooks.org. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Republicans and out-of-style economists warn that the Biden administration is leading the economy into runaway inflation. The Biden administration and Federal Reserve, by contrast, point to the major disruptions caused by the pandemic, arguing that the inflation we've seen is caused by sector-specific supply chain bottlenecks. My guest today is historian Tim Barker. According to Barker, both sides of this debate share the same and rarely examined premises. And those premises are staunchly anti-worker. The first premise is how to interpret inflation. Their shared conventional wisdom being that problematic inflation is typically caused by worker wages rising too much, which thus forces businesses to raise prices. The second premise is how to deal with inflation. Their conventional wisdom being that problematic inflation can only be solved by tightening the money supply to push unemployment up and wages down. Both sides of the debate, in other words, agree that raising the share of the national income taken by workers and decreasing inequality is impossible without causing inflation. What they disagree about, by and large, is what sort of inflation is taking place right now. The Biden administration and Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell say that it's sector-specific and temporary. Their critics contend that the Fed's expansionary monetary policy and Biden's fiscal stimulus is tightening the labor market so much that workers have too much power and so wages are increasing too much and sending us into a wage-price spiral of inflation. In 1979, Democratic President Jimmy Carter nominated Paul Volcker to become the next Federal Reserve chair. Volcker quickly implemented what is now known as the Volcker Shock, sending interest rates through the roof, inducing a recession, and crushing worker power in the U.S. And also, there's a global dimension here. It pushed the global South into a huge debt crisis, paving the way for the implementation of neoliberalism around the world. In the U.S., that worker power built through struggle from the 1930s on, has never recovered. What's key about Barker's argument is that the ideology that guided Volcker still hasn't changed that much, despite the Fed 
for years now having adopted rock-bottom interest rates to keep the economy humming after the 2008 economic crisis. Wages remain stagnant, and finance now seems forever dependent upon the Fed, which represents a historic change in capitalism, something we're going to talk about a bit in this interview. But if wages do rise, workers remain vulnerable to another bout of inflation being blamed on rising wages. With massive unemployment and yet lower wages, the result. As Barker explains, inflation is more complex than wages, and the solutions to inflation need not be anti-worker. And that's in the cases where inflation is indeed a problem, which is by no means always the case. We've got to politicize monetary policy by both fighting for a different interpretation of inflation and by building enough working class power so that when the time comes, the left has the analysis and strength to push for spending and planning instead of retrenchment and austerity. Anyhow, I'll link to Barker's essay in Phenomenal World in the show notes, as well as a few other relevant articles. Also, this episode pairs quite nicely with my last interview with Isabella Weber on how China escaped shock therapy. We do try to define some key terms and concepts at the top of the interview, but this episode is a complicated one. Do not hesitate to hit that 15-second rewind button when necessary, and take the time to read Tim's article if that's helpful. If we're going to transform economics and monetary policy, we've got to demystify and understand them first. Before we get started, if you appreciate what we do at The Dig, please consider supporting us at patreon.com. If you're listening right now and you've always been meaning to support us but never get around to doing so because I get it, it is one of those things that you mean to do and don't do, please just hit pause for a second navigate to the website patreon.com slash the dig and make a contribution. Even $5 a month goes a long way. $10 a month or more, and we will send you a book or books, a mug, a tote bag with the dig logo. But since we don't pay well any episodes, the main way we raise the money to keep the pod going is just to ask you to contribute. So please contribute. If you depend on the dig for our in-depth analysis, then know that we depend on you for your support. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Also a reminder that I am on a semi-sabbatical for July and August and only posting episodes once every two weeks. If you need more dig, please peruse our vast archives at thedigradio.com. They're organized by topic and by guest there are so many great interviews, years and years of interviews, and very few of you have listened to all of them. So there's always more dig, thedigradio.com. Okay, here's my interview with Tim Barker, an historian of modern capitalism and an editor for Dissent and Phenomenal World. Tim Barker, welcome to The Dig. Hi, great to be here. I want to start with some basic definitions because economics is really unclear to a lot of people. First, what is inflation? And then why does inflation happen, both according to longstanding conventional wisdom and in reality? Maybe just to take a step back, you know, I'm not really a, a trained economist either. And my my approach to this is really as a, a historian and also someone interested in politics, um, and so I, uh, you know, if there are any listeners out there who find this stuff really obscure um, and off-putting, 
I'm more like you than I am like a, you know, a trained economist. Um, but a lot of what I've discovered is that these things are, you know, sometimes simpler than they appear. And it, that's what I've tried to do. in I think some of the writing we're talking about today uh, and what hopefully we'll do in this podcast. So at the sort of most basic level, inflation is a rise in the prices of things. And specifically, it's a rise in the general price level, not a rise in a specific price. So you might imagine that, you know, one day there's a big Zoomer hipster uh, revival of interest in pavement, and then the cost of, you know, pavement LPs will go through the roof. That would be a rise in prices, but it wouldn't be inflation. Inflation would be more like you see the prices of a, a sort of general basket of goods, you know, ranging from the gas you put in your car to the food you buy at the supermarket to the steel that a manufacturer buys as an input into other manufactured products, uh, a rise in those prices across the board. And what causes it? Uh, the kind of classic textbook definition you'll find, you know, if you're in a kind of econ 101 class, is that inflation is a case of too much money chasing not enough goods, right? So we can think about money as a kind of claim on real goods and services. You get it and it entitles you to claim these sort of real things with, with use values that are produced uh, in the economy. But if you were to issue too many of these promissory notes, too much money, without uh, adequately expanding the sort of stuff there is to buy with it in the economy, you would see a rise in prices because people would be sort of bidding against each other uh, for this limited stock of goods with more and more money. Now that's the kind of standard definition, but like a lot of textbook economics, it leaves a lot of sort of more basic questions unanswered, right? Which is sort of what's determining the money supply, what's determining the stock of goods and services, you know, which there is to buy, what is determining the pricing policies that the people who sell these things are using to decide what they're going to charge for them. So in a way, the, the definition of too much money chasing not enough goods is a, is a good starting point, but it's, it, it leaves a lot that still needs to be explained. And so, you know, I think that to understand those questions, you need to take a sort of more institutional approach than you see in textbook economics. You need to look at, you know, first of all, the kind of conditions of production of the things which, you know, are being bought and sold. So, you know, a classic example would be in the 1970s, a powerful driver of inflation was the cost of oil. And, the, you know, oil is an input into almost everything, you know, to get anything onto a shelf, you need to get it there with, you know, using some kind of energy. Uh, and so a rise in the price of oil can lead to a generalized inflation of the sort that, you know, we're trying to understand here. But what affects the price of oil, right? And if you think about that, uh, the answer to the question has to do with, you know, the political relationships between oil producing countries, uh, many of which are in the global south, and the major oil companies, which are multinational, but headquartered in the, uh, the global north, usually, and between governments, you know, between the Saudi government and the US government, uh, you'll need to understand what's going on at oil refineries and the position that the oil and chemical and atomic workers union is taking in their uh, collective bargaining. And so to like to get behind the seemingly obvious thing, like a rise in the price of oil, you actually get to need, uh, need to take a look at these relationships, which are, you know, at base um, relationships of, of power between different social groups. Okay. What is a central bank in general and what is the federal reserve in the United States in particular? And more specifically, what do central banks do to shape the economy and to control inflation? Yeah. So I think, you know, the best way to think about what a central bank is, is it's a, it's a kind of bank of banks. It stands at the top of the banking system and controls some of the levers that then affect uh, the kind of lending and borrowing that other banks further downstream will do. In the U.S., the, the central bank is the Federal Reserve, right? It's only existed since the 1910s. Before that, uh, the banking system really wasn't. 
controlled in this way. But since the 1910s and the, the progressive era, we've had a Federal Reserve, which is a central bank for the US. And just to give you an idea of the kinds of levers that I said they, they have you know, some control over, we should think of that as basically controlling the, the general availability of money and credit throughout the economy. Uh, so you know, at all levels of the economy uh, and at all levels of, of the financial system, at any given time, there'll be a, a you know a demand for money and credit for liquidity to sort of grease the wheels of all kinds of economic activity. You know, I want to buy a house, then I borrow money to do that. I want to expand my steelmaking plant. I will get a business loan to do that. And there's a big range of possibilities of the the terms on which I can get access to that kind of money and credit. And the the terms of access uh, to money and credit are sort of set or heavily influenced, at least, by the central bank. And they have a couple of levers for doing that. Some of the most important are uh, setting interest rates. Uh, so the, the Federal Reserve sets the federal funds rate, which is a, an interest rate at which banks can borrow from each other. And so you can sort of imagine how the Fed controls the, the access of downstream banks to money and credit, and then the banks in their business and consumer loaning lending will pass on credit at terms influenced by the terms uh, set by the central bank. And maybe that sounds uh, a little bit convoluted. So like a concrete example would be that the Federal Reserve, you know, when you read in the newspaper that the Federal Reserve has raised rates, that's, you know, usually talking about the federal funds rate. Uh, and so say they raise the federal funds rate, then a bank that's looking to make a mortgage loan will find itself paying more to access liquidity and so they'll charge the mortgage borrower more in turn too. So something that happens, you know, at the Federal Reserve level will then trickle down to the conditions under which uh, people looking to buy a home will be able to uh, do that and the kind of uh, interest they'll have to pay in order to get access to that money. We're going to talk a lot about the wage share of the national income. What is the wage share and what role does conventional economic wisdom assign it in relation to inflation? And then why is it also a useful proxy for the balance of class forces in a capitalist economy? Yeah. So, I mean, just to start with, you know, at the most basic, national income is a, a way of thinking about the value of all the goods and services that is produced uh, in a country, you know, in a given time span. And the the measure of national income that we use that you'll hear about is gross domestic product or GDP. So if, if the national income is the value of everything that's produced in the economy, one way to think about the national income is as the value of the goods and services that are produced in the economy. But you can also look at it as the sum of uh, incomes that are paid out in the economy, because for every good and service that's produced, uh, someone is getting an, in, uh, an income of some kind, whether that's wages, profits, rents, every, you know, the sale of an item represents both the value of the good or service produced, but if you look at it from the other side, that's also an income that's going to someone. So you can think about GDP as not just a, a sort of set of goods and services out there to buy, but it's also a set of income flowing to different places. Uh, so then within that, you can break down the national income and ask, where is this income going, right? And a certain amount of it, a certain percent is going to wages, salaries, other kinds of compensation to people for their labor. The ratio of compensation to labor over the the total national income is the wage share, right? It's the kind of the chunk of the value of what's produced that is being paid out to workers um, for their labor. And I think I'll start with the, the question of the balance of class forces, because I think it might follow most intuitively. You know, I think it's, if you think about it, it's pretty straightforward how you can think about the ratio of total value 
uh, to the value that workers are receiving as a kind of index of uh, how much workers are able to get out of the system, right? In a, you know, in a, a Marxian uh, approach, this would be a kind of measure of uh, the rate of exploitation, right? How much of the social product is going to the people who make it and how much is being, how much of that surplus is being sort of taken by someone else who's not the direct producer. Uh, and so if you look at the wage here over time, uh, you can sort of get a sense, I think, of how strong labor is because you get a sense of how much of the value of what they produce they're able to claim back uh, in the form of compensation. Now, uh, you know, th there's a lot of technical points here about the limitations of the wage share as a measure of this. You know, there's, with any kind of economic statistic, there are you know, lots of decisions you can make about how to measure things, and those decisions you make will affect the statistic that is produced, you know, so you wouldn't want to look at the wage share as the only index of this kind of thing, uh, especially over the short term, because there are all kinds of things that can affect it. But when you're looking at over the long term, it's a fairly good measure. And when you look at over the long term, what you see is a pretty sharp decline uh, in the labor share of income, which, as we'll talk about more uh, later today, correlates pretty closely with what we know to be the, uh, the sort of institutional trajectory of, of workers' organizations in this country. You, you asked also about the, the, place, the place it's played in inflation. And so the answer to that is that uh, in a lot of conventional economic models, including the models that the Federal Reserve, the US Central Bank has used uh, to decide on monetary policy, they viewed the labor share as a driver of inflation. So they assume that holding all other things equal, if the labor share of income increases, that will mean an increase in inflationary pressures, and that will mean that the Federal Reserve uh, wants to tighten monetary policy or raise interest rates in order to limit the growth of money and credit in the economy. And you know, the sort of important upshot here is in order to slow economic activity. So the, the Federal Reserve, um, to simplify just a little bit, will react to a rise in the wage share by slowing the economy down, even to the point of increasing, uh, of inducing a recession. And the reason that they see that kind of connection is they think that a rise in the wage share implies a squeeze on the profit share of income. So the flip side of an increase in what workers are able to get is a decrease in the profits enjoyed by businesses. They further assume in their working model that businesses will respond to falling profits by trying to raise prices, right? Because they want to keep their margin of profit. They don't, they're not happy to see it fall because workers are getting paid more. Uh, so they'll try to raise prices. And where those price increases are effective, uh, that will lead to a dynamic where uh, prices throughout the economy go up. So there's a kind of chain of chain of events that leads from a sort of successful you know, claim by workers to more of the income the economy produces to uh, reduction in profits by uh, the businesses that employ them, to increases in prices, which then uh, can become kind of self-sustaining and become the kind of inflationary dynamic that is like the central banker's worst nightmare. And that is quite a premise for mainstream monetary policy to have, that inequality can never be decreased. And I want to pause here to recapitulate your core argument now that we've set up some basic definitions of what all of these different things mean. And I want to do it slowly and carefully and invite you to correct me if I get anything wrong. Here's your argument as I see it. There is a widespread interpretation at present that the Fed has made this huge break with tradition to become dovish on or tolerant of inflation. And you argue that the reality, though, is way more complicated, that monetary policymakers only hold to this position because they feel that it's cost-free for them to do so. And that's because there's been this half-century-long decline in worker power, which means, in their view, that they can have monetary expansion without that pushing wages up. And thus, 
that there'll be no major hike in wages that could push businesses to raise prices, and thus no threat of serious inflation for them to worry about. In recent Senate testimony, Fed Chair Jerome Powell said that the current bout of inflation is, quote, not tied to the things that inflation is usually tied to, which is a tight labor market, a tight economy. This is a shock going through the system associated with the reopening of the economy. So Powell's statement confirms your argument that the Fed still seems as though it would return to the conventional playbook, tightening up the money supply to check inflation, which would loosen the labor market, which would reduce worker bargaining power because more unemployed workers would be competing for fewer jobs, even if that meant inducing a recession. You write, quote, even the most dovish mainstream economists continue to see rate hikes eventually as the key anti-inflationary policy, revealing the limited spread of more creative thinking about how to manage the price level. Did I describe that right? What has changed for the Fed and what hasn't changed? And why is it important to identify this continuity in monetary ideology amid what many are describing in the newspaper every day as this high-profile change? Yeah, I think that's a really uh, perfect encapsulation of it. And, uh, you know, as you say, Powell's most recent testimony has continued, I think, uh, to confirm the, the picture of it that, that you just described. We might think about early Fed po- or earlier moments of Feder- Federal Reserve policy as not just looking to freeze the income distribution, but actually to change it in a regressive fashion. So it wasn't just that, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve uh, in the 80s and 90s was afraid to let the wage share increase. They were actually undertaking such aggressive, tight monetary policy that we saw the wage share decrease. So one way to think about the the current moment is that they're now okay with a kind of constant wage share, which sounds, you know, it it means that there won't be a progressive redistribution, but it's also a kind of halt to the, the regressive redistribution, which Federal Reserve policy was driving for a really long time. But they see really sharp limits uh, to what this truce covers. And so the second qualification that I would put in is that the Federal Reserve, uh, including Powell, but also more broadly, don't think that wages should never increase. If you look at their recent statements, you'll see that they, uh, in fact, seem to welcome some uh, wage growth, which has occurred recently. The problem is that they think that this wage growth should be constrained uh, very tightly by a specific set of parameters. And those parameters are the rate of inflation and the rate of productivity growth. So they think that wage wage increases are okay as long as they're kept within those parameters. Now, what do those parameters mean uh, to us? The first one is the rate of inflation, and that's pretty simple to understand. If uh, If the money wages you receive, right, measured in dollars, are staying the same while inflation is going up, your real wages are falling. Right, you're getting the same. Uh, there's the same number on your paycheck, but what you can buy with it is going down. So to say that uh, wages should be allowed to rise in tune with the the general level of inflation is to say that real wages should not fall, which is a a good thing, but also not an argument that real wages should rise. Uh, The second piece is productivity growth. The idea here is that it's okay for real wages to rise as long as they don't rise faster than the growth of productivity. And that sounds technical, but I think the, the basic principle here will be familiar to many listeners of The Dig as the kind of the premise underlying the sort of post-1945 golden age of capitalism uh, in which economic growth became a kind of substitute for redistribution. And there was an idea that a growing pie 
would allow uh, for everyone to have more income in an absolute sense, even though the, the distribution of that pie in terms of you know, what fraction of the pie you're getting didn't change. So this idea that wage increases should be tied to the increase of productivity is a version of that same idea, where it's okay for workers to get more if the whole economy is growing and uh, their wage increases are proportional to that growth of the economy. That's a way for workers' real wages to rise without the share of profits in the economy changing at all. So Powell is okay with, with wages increasing, but sort of within the bounds of this, this classical uh, golden age idea of the politics of productivity. So, you know, maybe a short, a shorthand way of saying what's changed and what hasn't is that Powell has backed away from some of the, the harshest distributive politics of neoliberalism, right, that we saw from the late 70s through, you know, say through 2020, in order to return to something like the, the 1945 through 1973 model in which productivity increases were seen as licensing an increase in real wages, but had to be kind of kept within those bounds. To what extent is the expansionary monetary policy underway currently pushing up wages and thus pushing up prices? A lot of inflation is obviously being caused by sector-specific problems related to the pandemic, like the used car market, for example. But are there also examples out there or signs that the tight labor market is leading to gains in wages that businesses, to protect their profits, are, are passing on as higher prices? You know, the, the sort of short answer is that no one has an exact picture of what's going on yet. Um, but to start with, you're absolutely right that, uh, you know, most most observers, I think, would agree that most of the inflation we've seen so far is not the result of a kind of generalized wage push. And one of the other sort of ways in which the Federal Reserve has changed is in acknowledging this, right? Uh, if you go back and read the way that the Federal Reserve is talking about things, you know, as late as 2016, they really are thinking about the labor market as the sort of fundamental source of inflationary pressures in the economy. But in the statements that, that Powell and that Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and that the Biden Council of Economic Advisors have made, they've all really um, shown that they now have a different way of thinking about this, where they think about these sector-specific problems like you know, a bottleneck in the production of semiconductors leading to an increase in the price of new cars, leading to an increase in the price of used cars. They tend to center that much more. Uh, the general consensus now seems to be that we do not see a generalized increase in uh, wages across the economy, and that in fact, wages in the aggregate may be uh, rising more slowly than inflation uh, at the moment. So we're very far off from the point of um, even increasing real wages, much less the idea of, an, of a sort of wage increase that would take away from profits. With that said, uh, there is also evidence that in certain industries, for instance, you know, the hospitality, entertainment, outside of the house dining industries, which have been, you know, seen some of the most powerful and rapid expansion with the end of the shutdowns, that there have been uh, increases in labor costs, um, which may be showing up uh, in prices, although it's too soon to say that conclusively. But uh, the important point there is that uh, the fact that wages are not rising across the economy does not mean that this isn't happening in some sectors. It's, it's fairly clear that it is happening somewhere else. Let's turn back to the history of this present monetary moment. Starting in 1979, the year of the so-called Volcker shock, that's when Fed Chair Paul Volcker sent interest rates through the roof to tame high levels of inflation, which of course caused a recession and alongside Reagan policies crushed worker power. What were the economic and political conditions at the time? Why did Volcker respond with his shock? And then why has that been so consequential for the past half century, so permanent in its effects in terms of worker power? 
Yeah, that's a great question because the, you know, the history is really important here. And, you know, I'm a historian, but I don't think it's just my professional bias that uh, makes me think the history is important here. I think whenever you read fairly mainstream accounts of the the new the new turn in macroeconomic policy, if you read it in the New York Times, uh, they will also frame it inevitably with reference to the 1970s, right? Uh, so it's, you know, whenever Americans think about inflation, their minds go to the 1970s. So it's important, I think, to understand the story if we're gonna think critically about what's going on right now. Uh, so the US uh, economy starts to see inflationary pressures really from late 1965 onward. And those initial pressures are uh, tied to the Vietnam War mobilization, which happens uh, extremely quickly. Uh, and without a lot of time or political will for there to be adjustments in the economy um, other than inflation. So we start to see a kind of slow price increase around the mid 60s. Uh, but by 1979, which is when the Volcker shock occurs, annual rates of inflation are starting to look over um, over double digits, right? Over 10%, uh, which you, uh, Dan, know a lot about Latin America and other other listeners will know about other parts of the world. By world standards, this is not especially uh, dramatic inflation. You know, when we think about inflations in other countries, we're talking about inflations of hundreds of percents or thousands of percents, right? Um, but in the U.S. experience, especially the U.S. experience outside of wartime, uh, double-digit inflation was relatively high and was very alarming uh, to a number of observers from, I should say, from across the political parties and from across, across the class spectrum. Uh, there was a generalized sense of a crisis. It wasn't a sort of completely manufactured crisis. Uh, and so everyone agreed that something sort of had to be done about this inflation. And in the late 1970s, pressures mounted because of a few specific events. Uh, one was that uh, starting in 1978, there's a lot of pressure on the US dollar in international currency markets. So there's a, there's a sort of move by currency traders to bet against the, the future value of the dollar because of the strength of US inflation at home and their skepticism that there'd be any sort of political way of dealing with that problem. So the dollar is coming under uh, a lot of pressure internationally and that dollar crisis is really the, the immediate reason that Volcker gets appointed to the Federal Reserve. You know, the, the coverage of this in the media at the time, you'll see headlines like the dollar chooses a chairman. Uh, and there's an idea that it's really pressure from from the the global currency markets that that makes it really important to bring inflation under con- control because inflation is seen as a cause of this uh, you know international skepticism about the the stability of the dollar's value. So that's one thing that happens. Uh, another thing that happens in 1979 is the Iranian Revolution, which has both direct effects on oil production, but also just feeds a kind of general. Um, set of expectations that there will be disruption in the price of oil, which uh, oil being one of the most important inputs to everything in the American economy means that instability in, in oil markets and an increase in the price of oil will lead to dislocations across the whole economy. And so Volcker comes in, you know, against a sort of more than a decade background of inflation and also with these sort of specific events helping to raise the sense of urgency. And so the question then is what what is he or anyone else in the government going to do about the inflation? Because, you know, people have been trying to deal with this since 1966 and they have not had a lot of success. And essentially Volcker's breakthrough is that he revives a really old fashioned way of dealing with inflation. You know, if we go back to the late 19th century, inflation isn't much of a problem because whenever it seems like it's going to happen, the workings of the international gold standard lead to a a deflationary response. we don't need to get into all the ways that the, the gold standard worked, um, but basically the possibilities of economic stimulus were really limited by the requirement that 
monetary expansion be tied to gold reserves. And so you didn't have a problem with inflation in the late 19th century because it was easy, um, almost sort of automatic for the system to respond to any pressure on labor markets or other markets with an increase in unemployment. But you did have economic panics every 20 years that destroyed the economy and people's lives. <laughs> right. So the late 19th century was kind of a mirror image of, of the late 20th century, uh, where you had frequent crises and depressions and business failures. And, you know, without at that point, even without a central bank uh, to sort through things, but you didn't have a problem with workers being too strong and you didn't have a problem with inflation. In the 1970s, you know, macroeconomic management had come a long way and you didn't have the kinds of deep depressions uh, that you did in the late 19th century, but you did have this new problem of inflation. And so essentially what Volcker does is to go back to the late 19th century playbook um, and to say that the solution to inflation is, is unemployment and not just a little bit on, of unemployment, but like unemployment that will be really extreme and politically painful uh, to sort of make that concrete the Volcker policies uh, lead to the highest unemployment in the U.S. since the 1930s. So he's willing to go sort of approach a Great Depression level of unemployment for the first time in 30 years, because at that point, it seems like the only option left for dealing with inflation. The Volcker shock is sometimes called the Volcker coup by critics. But you say that's not quite right, because the conventional story you write is that through the 1970s, quote, the Fed recklessly ignored the need for monetary rigor because discipline was unpopular with politicians and voters. But you write that, in fact, the Fed responded to union wage advances by tightening the money supply throughout the decade. So was 1979 more of a quantitative leap than a qualitative one? And if that's the case, why is it so often mischaracterized in retrospect? You know, the, Vol the story of the Volcker shock in general is is well known. And, you know, anyone who's read like David Harvey's Brief History of Neoliberalism or, you know, any any of the sort of popular accounts of, of the rise of neoliberalism will be familiar with the general story. Uh, one of the new arguments I've tried to make about the Volcker shock is that in some ways it was less of a departure uh, than it seems. And I think that if you look at uh, Federal Reserve policy throughout the 1950s and much of the 1970s, you see a surprising willingness to put up with unemployment. But if you look at the 1950s, you see that there was actually like often fairly high levels of unemployment uh, to the extent that when, you know, John F. Kennedy becomes president in 1961, I think there's over 7% unemployment and a big theme in, in Kennedy's inaugural address is that there's all this slack in the economy. So in a way you can see kind of Volcker-like policies, I think at earlier moments in Fed history, even in the period we think of as a time of kind of consensus and economic good times. You know, so I think there's a there's there's a way in which Volcker's uh, singularity is exaggerated, in a way that understates how comfortable U.S. policymakers have always been with unemployment of a of a relatively serious character. You know, I think the the idea that the U.S. ever enjoyed decades of of full employment is just false. But with that said, you know, obviously I I still see 1979 as a turning point, and I think you can't absolutely throw throw that idea out. One thing that makes a difference is that the Volcker policy, so the Volcker shock comes in late 1979. And as your listeners will know, about a year later, uh, Ronald Reagan is elected president. So the Volcker shock comes at a time uh, when the, the presidency is also taking a, a turn towards what we now call neoliberalism, what was then clearly at the time a policy of, of wage repression and of anti-labor policies. So if we want to think about how the Volcker shock was different from earlier episodes in which the Federal Reserve was perfectly comfortable throwing people out of work to fight inflation, we can think about the kind of Volcker-Reagan alliance. Uh, because, you know, in, in the 1960s, John F. Kennedy or Lyndon Johnson 
would have pushed back against uh, Federal Reserve rate increases because they saw relatively full employment as an important part of maintaining their political futures, right? A, a democratic president kind of had to be able to deliver something to workers, to unions, so that you see this fighting uh, between the Federal Reserve and the presidency. But Reagan, you know, despite there's some disagreement in, in his within his administration, there's there's moments of tension with the Fed. Reagan is basically supportive of Volcker's policy of, of a recession as the medicine for anti-inflation and even welcomes it because Reagan uh, has this, you know, very political project of breaking the labor movement in the U.S., uh, which is embodied uh, famously in his breaking of the air traffic controller strike, uh, when he not only breaks the strike, uh, but imprisons the leaders of the union uh, and permanently replaces the strikers, uh, which is a, you know, universally acknowledged as a sort of starting gun for then a, a, a corporate uh, private sector campaign against unions. And Reagan and his advisors think that unemployment is a great complement to this strategy because obviously, as we know, uh, a union doing collective bargaining in the middle of a depression is going to ask for a lot less than one bargaining in the middle of a tight labor market. And that goes both ways. Um, Volcker is very clear that he saw Reagan's intervention in the air traffic controller strike as maybe the most important support that the administration gave to his fight against inflation. And you write that Volcker quote, even carried an index card schedule of upcoming union contract negotiations in his pocket. Crushing labor was not incidental to his program. Not at all. It was an obsession. And that's, you know, one of the big like lessons I've drawn from reading, you know, transcripts of Federal Reserve discussions. And uh, one of the th arguments I've tried to make is that while monetary policy sometimes seems like this abstract technical thing, if you actually just try to get inside the way that the federal, the central bankers themselves thought about things, it's a very concrete and almost simple, you know, story of um, of class struggle, and they're not really that confused or uncertain on that point. And so Volcker is obsessed with uh, with labor unions. If you go through the transcripts from this time, they're always monitoring, you know, the latest news out of Detroit, the latest news out of Steel uh, for signs of progress in their anti-inflation program. And I should say that uh, Volcker intervened in this process, not just uh, through monetary policy. He had also been part of, um, in 1979, Chrysler, the, the automaker is, is near bankruptcy and requires a government bailout. And Volcker is involved in the bailout in connection with restructuring the union's agreements with Chrysler. And uh, Volcker has a specific goal in that process uh, as he's involved with the bailout to sort of uh, break with the, the, the patterns of collective bargaining and auto that had prevailed for the last 30 years. And so he he also intervenes more, more directly in the, the terms, you know, that govern the, the employer-employee relationship. And that's, you know, I think a, a good uh, context for his, his sort of obsession with this. Volcker, obviously, as we've been discussing blamed workers and wages. But what were the actually existing causes of inflation at the time? Where did or didn't rising wages factor in? And then how did this consensus emerge to blame it entirely on wages? Yeah. So this is something, you know, people still argue about today. What were the causes of the 1970s inflation? Can they be understood? You know, can you sort of parcel out, you know, some economic historians try to say it's 30% due to rising oil prices and 10% due to this, that, or the other. No one has really come to a definitive answer. I think the the important way to think about the question, though, is that the way that Volcker thought about things, workers were to blame whatever this sort of original cause of inflation was. So from Volcker's perspective, you could even say that the real ultimate cause of inflation was an oil shock, right? You know, geopolitical events in the Middle East. But then, you know, the, the oil shock by itself is just the beginning of a process. And say that the oil shock sets off inflation. 
Well, then there's this question, will, will workers be able to defend their real wages against inflation or will they pay the cost of inflation? You know, so inflation starts somewhere else in the system, say workers aren't involved at all. There's still a question of whether the inflation will lead to workers' real wages uh, falling or whether they'll be strong enough to fight to protect their wages. And so Volcker is sort of willing to entertain that there might be a variety of causes of inflation in some ultimate sense, but he thinks the fact that workers are strong enough to protect their real wages is a problem and will help translate something like an oil shock into an economy-wide inflationary spiral. So even if you would admit that, that there are other causes, he would think there's this sort of crucial link in the chain, which is workers' ability to, to defend their real wages, which needs to be broken. And was he sort of like, what? well, it could be oil, but what am I supposed to do about that? What I can do is crush worker power. Absolutely. And I think that's that's very clear in his testimony. You know, he'll say that here, I mean, his, his testimony before Congress, uh, you know, and, and in that kind of testimony, he'll say the oil thing is basically external. The costs are going to be borne by the U.S. economy somehow. And he's not willing to think that, you know, it will come out of profits, partly because he thinks profits have already been squeezed a lot through the 70s and the system can't really afford to see them squeeze any further. So I think the way you put it is exactly right. I should say, too, as one qualification, you know, Volcker is in some ways comes off as a villainous figure in the, the discussion we've having. And I I think there's good reason for that. But I also think it's important to, you know, think about the way that historical actors understood what they were doing. And I think Volcker sincerely believed that there was no alternative to what he was doing. And he he believed that if you didn't crush inflation through a sort of induced recession, there would still at some point be a recession later. He's really an old school guy, really a, a pre-Keynesian in his thinking, in that he thinks the, you know, if the if the good times are too good, you're gonna have to pay the price one time or another. So in his, you know, in his own mindset, he wasn't causing um gratuitous pain. He was kind of hastening an adjustment, which would have had to happen anyway, anyway. And I just, you know, I think that's important to mention so we don't make these people out to be kind of comic book villains who are, you know, taking pleasure in in what they're doing. Yeah, you write, quote, Volker was genuinely independent from narrowly defined special interests. He was a true believer. What accounts for his ideological commitments if we can't crudely reduce it to to business interests? And even if Volker was a true believer, was there still a material basis, however indeterminate, to be found in this broader business-led reaction to the profitability crisis of the 70s, something we haven't mentioned, the rise of Japanese and West German competition, which was squeezing the profit margins of American corporations. After all, you write that David Rockefeller was initially offered the job as Fed chair, and he turned it down and recommended that President Jimmy Carter choose Volcker instead. We can't, we cannot think of Volcker as sort of a, you know, just like a corrupt figure who's, you know, going to Washington to line the, the pockets of himself and his friends. Uh, but he does, you know, he spent his whole life in a, a socially specific environment, uh, which was both the, the Chase Bank, which was headed by Rockefeller and which was uh, at the time, at least by the 1970s, the largest bank in the world with significant uh, foreign lending, which is important, uh, but not just at Chase Bank, but also at the, the New York branch of the Federal Reserve. You know, for people who follow the the Federal Reserve system, the New York Fed is really important, uh, and not just because you know New York is a big city or because Wall Street is there. The New York Federal Reserve also is kind of the the appointed uh, liaison with international capital markets. So, you know, between both his public service at the New York Fed and his professional background at you know a big international bank, Volcker brought with him a sort of you know set of assumptions about what the system required to work, to work, which he would not have seen in terms of a, a sort of you know, special pleading or a kind of, you know, narrow particularism, uh, I think his thinking would have been something more like this. If um, 
profits fall too far, or if the international value of the dollar falls too far, that will lead to a sort of generalized economic problem in the US, which will eventually hurt everyone, even if the people it hurts first and most are places like the Chase Bank. And so I think it's a kind of, you know, your, your listeners will probably have some familiarity with all these old debates about ideology, right? And the critique of ideology. And a, a common way to think about ideology is that it's, it's a way of, of harmonizing a particular interest, like say David Rockefeller's interest in, you know, the strength of the dollar as the reserve currency and a universal interest. And so for someone like Volcker, those interests would have been more or less similar so that when he does intervene, to bail out international lenders, which he does in a big way in the early 1980s, he sees that as a way to prevent the collapse of the entire economic system, not as a way to sort of help his former employer. That's hegemony at work making a particular concern appear to be a general one. You sent me a, a really interesting article by Dean Baker, Robert Pollan, and Elizabeth Zard. And as they put it, quote, by focusing on inflation as such rather than the issues of income distribution and profitability, the priorities of a small segment of society, i.e. the wealthy, acquired the status of a nationally shared concern. And so a story about the historical inevitability, inevitability of discipline, of imposing discipline upon a fundamentally broken New Deal order, however tragic, that this was actually upon closer inspection a class conflict that was decided in favor of capital. But that conflict was mystified at the time and in retrospect by the construction of this this hegemonic consensus. And you write that there were indeed alternatives to austerity that the Fed and the government could have pursued at the time. But not only did they not choose to pursue them, but they didn't really, they didn't pursue them because in fact, it appeared as though there was no alternative as the famous neoliberal dictum goes. What were those alternatives and why weren't they up for discussion? Right. That's a, that's a great question because as we know, you know, hegemony works partly by displacing certain options, which are technically possible off the table. And I think maybe the best way into thinking about alternatives is to go back to, you know, this sort of very simple model of the, the wage price spiral that we've laid out um, a couple of times in this interview. So the way that the Fed thinks about things, if wages go up, then profits will go down and businesses will raise prices in order to protect their profit margins. If you just think about that just as a technical description of an economic process, you might ask, why does this? Uh, why does the intervention have to be to control wages rather than to control pricing decisions? You might say that uh, rising wages in the steel industry should be reflected in falling profits for steelmakers, uh, and that the government can kind of try to enforce that by limiting the degree to which steel prices, you know, could increase. And I think to some people that sounds like, oh, it, you know, could never happen in the U.S. We have these traditions of, uh, you know, free market, anti-state sort of things, which would just make that never possible. But I think that's wrong because uh, there's just a- tell that to John Kenneth Galbraith. Absolutely. Or, you know, uh, in, in 1962, John F. Kennedy called uh, the head of U.S. Steel into his office and like basically yelled at him until he rolled back a, a, a steel price increase. And so, you know, it wasn't a crazy idea. The idea that things like steel um, or electrical goods or these sort of, you know, the commanding heights of the economy, the idea that they were so central to the economy that that their pricing policy was actually a legitimate object of government intervention was not at all foreign at the time. Uh, yeah. yet, During World War II, the U.S. government used wage and price controls to maintain, not only maintain price stability, which which they did, i.e. ward off inflation, but they, they did that and achieved explosive economic growth, contrary to all neoliberal and National Association of Manufacturer warnings to the contrary. 
Absolutely. It's a, you know, the World War II economy is almost a totally planned economy, but we see different versions of this with, you know, the Korean War. There are also direct controls. You know, there was someone in Washington deciding on allocations and essentially how many cars Detroit was going to get to build the next year. And we see it again in the early 70s when Nixon imposes uh, wage and price controls, which are are somewhat sometimes referred to as the nation's first uh, peacetime wage and price controls, which is a little bit euphemistic when you consider uh, the ongoing U.S. role in, in Southeast Asia at the time. Um, but it shows that as early as, I mean, as, as recent, as close to 1979 as 1974, there were wage and price controls. And opinion polling from the time shows a, a big openness to this uh, among the general public and also among the, you know, the, the technocrats of the Carter administration. Uh, Barry Bosworth, who is a kind of Jimmy Carter's inflation czar at the same time that Volcker's coming in, actually resigns from government because he really thinks there should be mandatory uh, controls and the administration isn't willing to go for it. So as crazy as it sounds to us now after decades of neoliberalism, the idea that there might be some kind of other way, you know, a more direct kind of control that might fight inflation was not at all foreign at the time. Is there something about how economic conditions had fundamentally changed in the 1970s that might have made those tools less useful, the sort of, this is obviously the beginning of the secular wage stagnation that we've seen in the 1970s, but is there something about the beginning of secular economic stagnation more generally at the time, this sort of systematic global overcapacity that Aaron Beninov argues characterizes the capitalist world system? Does that begin to change the viability of those kind of tools? I think so. Yeah. Um, and in, in a number of ways, you know, the, the most direct line from from what you're talking about, which is a, you know, a deep crisis of, of the capitalist system in the 1970s, uh, the deepest line or the, the clearest line connecting that uh, to the, the viability of these policies would be that by the late 1970s, there's a big widespread concern that profits are not high enough. Uh, right. And people, you know, people today debate this because. They're- and specifically because of competition at that time from two economies that the United States had actively nurtured after World War II, Japan and West Germany. Yeah, so in the in the sort of, you know, the the sort of the the really concentrated industrial core of the US economy, you know, that, that we can think of as kind of defining, you know, US economic power circa 1950 is by the 1970s under under really deep threat. You know, and the threat the threat sort of starts in industries like textiles, which are kind of, you know, low on the value chain, but by the 1970s going all the way up through electronics, aircraft, you know, some of the sort of more um you know, high-end things that had been the last preserves of, of U.S. economic dominance. Um, but contemporary observers are also keen to link the profit squeeze to uh, excessive wages. You know, that's that's more debatable, I think, empirically, but there is a certainly a felt need on the part of business. Um, so I think we can say that by the late 1970s, uh, these various causes of crisis had led business to organize in a big way. You know, if, if people are familiar with books like uh, Kim Flo Fine's Invisible Hands or even uh, some of Rick Perlstein's, you know, histories, they'll know that the 70s saw this big mobilization of business uh, unified to an extent that it had almost never been unified before, uh, trying to push against, uh, you know, consumer protections, against regulation of all kinds, against labor unions, and in some cases for a kind of import protection. Um, there's a generalized push and I think that that mobilization by business, which by 1979 had become very, very powerful, was a big obstacle to any kind of more uh, centrally planned or direct control approach to the problem of inflation. You write, quote, calls for tight money had always been heard in financial circles. But by the late 1970s, the executives of large industrial corporations had joined the chorus. Why was finance at that time very much unlike today, which is something we'll get to 
later on. Why were they the lead constituency for tight money? And then was it these conditions of heightened international competition and squeezed profits that led major corporations, major industrial corporations to join that finance-led coalition? Yeah, great. So I'll start with the question of why finance, right? Why why was finance the, you know, finance kind of personified by people like David Rockefeller and, and Paul Volcker, why were they in the lead? Uh, the first is that financiers and, and asset owners are historically often among the biggest group of people opposing inflation or worrying about inflation. And that's because inflation tends to erode the value of existing uh, wealth and assets, and particularly debt, right? If I'm, a, if I'm a bank and I lend money in 1970, and then there's a lot of inflation uh, over the next decade, by 1980, the real value of the debt I've owe, I'm owed is eroded. So in, you know, to a first approximation, inflation is good for debtors and bad for creditors. And so that's sort of one, you know, kind of almost transhistorical, but not quite reason, uh, you know, for finance to be especially worried about inflation. Uh, but there are other reasons too. I mentioned this before, but it's, it's, I think it's important enough to reiterate. By the, by the late 1970s, a huge percentage of profits for the U.S. financial sector are coming from international activities. So in a way, the, the financial sector had responded to falling profitability in the U.S. Uh, domestic economy by increasing its activities in countries around the world, including you know, countries of the third world. They sort of they discovered that that's where there was still room for a kind of really rapid growth. Um, it was also, uh, you know, in the 1970s, a time when these nations were uh, a lot of them receiving an economic stimulus from rising commodity prices. You know, so you can kind of think a classic example here would be U.S. banks were hugely invested in Mexico, right, which had benefited um, from the the high oil prices of the 1970s. And so for these international bankers with an increasing share of their profits coming from abroad, it's really important to kind of keep the dollar as the world's reserve currency, right? As the and kind to, of and to expand the example beyond Mexico throughout the global south, even non-oil producing nations, petrodollars were flowing into these banks and the banks from oil producing states, these petrodollars were flowing into the banks and then the banks were lending out money all over the global south. Sure. Yeah. It was called a recycling process, right? Where this, you know, these immense super profits coming from the petro countries were going through the US financial system and then back out again. Uh, and that was happening. You know, the reason that happened was one that the sort of the the currency of of the oil market was dollars, and so these these things were sort of already naturally dollarized. And because more generally, the dollar had become a kind of de facto world money uh, after World War II, and so the the U.S. international you know banking community, as they sometimes called it, had a big interest in making sure that the dollar continued to play this role. But that required that the dollar uh, had remained a kind of stable source of value. And so they thought that inflation at home would undermine the, the value of the dollar and therefore lead to countries starting to use other currencies uh, instead of the dollar to hold their reserves in and to, to, to use as the kind of unit of international banking. And this concern was heightened in the late 1970s by the formation of the European monetary system, which is a you know a, a, an ancestor of the euro. And there start to be rumors, you know, that in Saudi Arabia, they will start to hold reserves in, you know, in Deutschmarks or in yen instead of in dollars. So there's a kind of a, there's a financial equivalent to the, the manufacturing competition story we've talked about, where it's an open question whether the dollar will remain this kind of unchallenged world money. And so that's a specific reason beyond the kind of general reason that bankers don't like inflation, why people like Rockefeller and Volcker felt the situation to be very urgent in the late 70s. We haven't got into why 
industrial corporations join the coalition. But before we get there, since we went into this global context, particularly vis-a-vis petrodollars being recycled from oil-producing nations into lend- by banks into lending to the global south, we should probably just pause to touch on what were the consequences of the Volcker shock globally, particularly for the global south. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in some ways, you know, the effects are most serious abroad. Uh, you know, in the U.S., unemployment touches 10 percent and it's a really causes a lot of human suffering, especially in, you know, in certain places like, you know, Youngstown, Ohio or Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, but it's really not as what happens on the global south. And uh, the reason why it's such a big problem globally relates to what we were saying a few minutes ago, which is that in the 70s, there'd been a huge uh spree of lending to third world countries by bankers from the global north. And so uh, over the 70s, uh, a lot of countries, developing countries, countries of the third world, had become increasingly indebted. And particularly, they were indebted to US banks, which meant that their debts were dollar debts, right? They would have to pay these debts back uh, in, in dollars. And so what the Volcker shock does is to really raise the cost of dollarized debt. It's a huge increase in interest rates for anyone who owes dollars. And so for these uh, countries across the third world with huge amounts of debt, uh, it creates a problem where just even to meet the interest payments on these debts becomes impossible, uh, much less to sort of ever pay it back. And so that leads to uh, a sort of cascade of sovereign debt crises. You know, Mexico is a famous one, um, but it happens it happens all over. And that's, a, that's an opening for a kind of early uh, version of structural adjustment programs, which become very common in the 1990s in the, in the age of the Washington consensus. But essentially the, the Volcker shock makes these debts so hard to pay back that the countries need a bailout and the people giving the bailout are able to demand a lot uh, in exchange. Uh, and one of the things they demand is a kind of end to the, the industrial development, kind of nationally oriented industrial development that had been happening in these countries. So the leverage to impose neoliberalism without even the need of a military coup. Exactly. It's, it's sort of a new way of exercising international power, but which leads to really dramatic consequences. So if you, you know, if you're looking at the history of Mexico or Brazil or countries all over Africa, these are years of deindustrialization because the sort of conditions of being rescued from their, their debt involve policies that make you know, domestic investment and that sort of thing uh, completely impossible. So returning back to the question that we just sort of diverged from for productively diverged from for a few minutes. Why did major corporations join that finance-led coalition against inflation and for tight money? Yeah, that's a really important question. And I think it, it, it ties to something we were talking about earlier. Given that the Federal Reserve was not exactly unwilling to you know, undertake tight monetary policy before Volcker, what was it that was new about this moment? A while ago, I I had answered that question with reference to the presidency, right? Reagan was sort of on board for this in a way that Kennedy or Johnson wouldn't have been. And by the same token, I think industry was on board in a way that it hadn't been earlier. And, you know, you can see this really clearly um, looking at a company like General Electric, which is a a pretty, you know, not just a big company, but one that, that carried out a lot of different kinds of manufacturing and so stands in, I think, well for the sort of manufacturing sector of, of the U.S. economy. And if you go back to the early 1970s, when uh, the Federal Reserve actually did tighten money, there's opposition to that from the, the then CEO of General Electric. And why is that? Well, you can sort of think about what would uh, an induced recession do to General Electric, uh, which does a big business in consumer durables. 
uh, an induced recessional meeting that uh, workers are thrown out of work or the people who do have their work are worried about the future. And so they'll start to like save their money more. They won't have money. And as a result, they're not going to buy as many refrigerators and dishwashers. And so at that point, you actually see uh, resistance to tight Fed policy from someone like the CEO then of General Electric, who I think at that time was, was Fred Borch. A little bit of inflation means that you want to get the money out the door and make it buy stuff for you. Absolutely. And, and this... <laughs> It relates too to the to the the import competition question because you know circa 1970 General Electric had a lot of confidence in their ability to uh, raise prices and so you know they they would say ah oh, like there's inflation fine but we can sort of react to a little bit of inflation by just raising our prices and we don't have a lot of you know there aren't a lot of different companies uh, Americans can turn to for the kinds of things that General Electric makes you know so one thing that changes by the end of the 70s is that that sense of insulation from competition is gone and so there's less of a feeling that industrialists can just kind of live with inflation by raising prices. Um, and the, the competition is a part of that. But another thing that's happened is that the, the companies themselves, the industrial corporations themselves have become more international, right? So if you look at, we mentioned that international banking was expanding in the 1970s, but so was the rise of what came to be called the multinational corporation, which was actually an industrial or a manufacturing company, which was engaged in production all over the world. And this meant you know, sometimes they, you know, making cars in Argentina to sell to Argentines, but also increasingly it meant splitting up the production chain so that you would make, you know, mufflers in northern Mexico, which would then be put into cars somewhere else. And so there's a phenomenal growth in that multinationalization of the corporation, including the manufacturing corporation throughout the 70s, uh, which means that by the end of the 70s, a company like GE actually has a, a big stake in the value of the dollar um, because they have these investments abroad and money coming in from abroad. And so I think one reason that the Volcker shock has the political support it needs to succeed and why it's it's sustained for a long time, even at a, a great cost to US manufacturers, right? So, you know, we've talked so far about the fact that the Volcker shock and the recession which it created were really bad for workers and especially, you know, unionized workers in these manufacturing industries. They were also not good for uh, manufacturing in the US because, uh, you know, at a basic level, the workers who were, the millions of workers were thrown out of work, stopped buying things, uh, which is, you know, bad for people who make things. Uh, but there's also another sort of second order effect where, uh, the Volcker shock made U.S. exports more expensive. So these companies that were already struggling to compete with places like Japan and Germany now had a sort of additional challenge because the dollar had become a lot more expensive. And, you know, the, the, the details of that are, are a little bit complex, but the important point is that the Volcker shock at first glance was really bad for manufacturers. But there was enough support to kind of carry it through, at least for a few years, um, because the manufacturing industry had come closer to the position of finance uh, in terms of wanting to see the value of the dollar preserved, even at the cost of a recession in the United States. And so we talk about the financialization of capitalism all of the time. And in this case, is it fair to say that the globalization of U.S. corporations in the 1970s, their multinationalization, that that also meant that their interests became financialized? I think that that's it's really true that the you know the the multinationalization of the, the U.S. corporation means that its interests have become financialized in a significant sense. Uh, but I don't want to overstate the convergence of financial and, and manufacturing interests because you still see throughout the 1980s moments of conflict. And I think to understand that we should think about the fact that the Volcker shock is kind of an experiment. You know, even Volcker himself doesn't know how bad things have to get before he solves the problem. And I think uh, if you read 
his writings at the time. And since he was a little bit surprised at how bad things got, he was totally fine with it, uh, but he might not have put, <laughs> put, a, put, a, put his money on it. Wow. Uh, don't get me wrong. I'm not upset about this, but I am surprised. <laughs> yeah, no, he says he wrote, he wrote a memoir a few years ago um, where he says, you know, I didn't foresee what was going to happen, but of course, had I foreseen it, I wouldn't have done a thing different. So he's, you know, I think very clear on that point, but it was an experiment. And so I think, you know, manufacturers were, close enough to finance to go along with the experiment for a couple of years. But by 1982, things have gotten so bad. The recession is sort of so um, deep and scary and potentially unstable that there's a sort of a backlash and you see Volcker start to back away uh, from the sort of most stringent version of his policy. And so after that, you see a sort of uh, reemergence of, of conflict where U.S. exporters, you know, do start to kind of want an easing of, of interest rates. And there's a, you know, a, a give and a take there. So the 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 decline does not or sorry, the um, the distinction between, you know, the interests of, of industrial and financial capital does not go away. But there are the conditions for uh, at least, you know, a couple of years of like a really unprecedented experiment um, that is founded on a, a partial convergence of their interests. You write, quote, the coalition also encompassed tens of millions of homeowners and shareholders always relatively large in the United States, this rentier middle class was subsequently expanded and consolidated by decades of neoliberal policy. Why did homeowners join the reaction against inflation and for tight money in the 70s? Because as mortgage debtors, wouldn't they have benefited from inflation because inflation reduced the value of their debts to the bank? One answer to the question is that Volcker was very careful. Uh, he made intentional political choices to shield homeowners from some of the worst effects of his high interest rate policy. And this is a point made uh, and documented by uh, Sam Gindin and, and, and Leo Panich in their book, uh, The Making of Global Capitalism, which I, you know, I really recommend for its treatment of these issues to all your readers. And they point out that uh, Volcker kind of made a, made a choice to keep the savings and loans institutions, which had been sort of designated housing lenders throughout the New Deal order to keep them solvent, even though sort of left to their own devices, they would have failed early in the decade. And that Volcker did this as a way um, to prevent a sort of collapse in the housing housing credit markets uh, that would have alienated too many sort of middle-class homeowners. So he made some specific you know, choices to, uh, to insulate these people from the worst of it. But with that said, there was still, obviously it became very hard uh, you know, to get a mortgage. At this time, it was really bad for home builders and, and would have been, uh, you could sort of imagine that, that homeowners should have uh, welcomed inflation. I think you know, another way to think about why they, why they did take the Volcker side of things was that you know at this point homes aren't the only assets that people own uh, a lot of people own stocks and the stock market in the late 70s was really abysmal to a degree that we kind of forget today you know now we know that despite something like 2008 despite the 2020 coronavirus like crash if you put money in an index fund at some point you know in the 21st century you will now have much more money than you put in initially over the 1970s, the big stock market indices like the Dow Jones lost real value, you know, which is just so it's so hard for us to imagine that it, it just really bears like repeating. Uh, if you would put money in an index fund in 1970, you would have lost money in 1979. Um, and so if we think about this kind of asset owning middle class as not just homeowners, but also people owning different kinds of assets, you can start to see how how freaked out people would have been by this and how, you know, how they would have been willing 
uh, to sign on to a program that said that something had to be done, you know, but in most cases, they probably, you know, they couldn't have told you all the different manifold effects that, that the Volcker shock would have, but there was an atmosphere of, of crisis, which was also related to something Mike Davis writes about, you know, this is the same moment of these big middle-class tax revolts, right? right. That is most famously embodied in uh, the California, I forget what the proposition number is. In California, you know, there's a big revolt against property taxes. And so that's sort of an example of how you can think about something that's it's not linked in a straightforward way to the interest rate policy, but it does uh, suggest uh, a mood among homeowners uh, for something new. And, you know, once these things get packaged, part of what neoliberal policymakers did was to package these things together, which might not have necessarily had a lot to do with each other, but to say that if you're someone who hates taxes, you know, you should also be upset about unions. You should also be upset about inflation uh, and to put all these things together. And hey, this is all related to Black people trying to move into your neighborhood. Absolutely. And I mean, the, you know, we haven't talked about it yet. And that's a, you know, probably a mistake is that when the Fed decides that it's going to control inflation by causing unemployment, that is just sort of ipso facto, uh, a hugely disproportionate assault on black workers. Um, because at any given time, then or now, the, you know, black unemployment is much higher than white unemployment. So, you know, like we look at the Volcker shock in a kind of really big picture sense, we say, okay, you know, unemployment went to 10%. That seems bad, but it's not, you know, it's not the end of the world. It's not like the Great Depression when a quarter of the workforce was unemployed. But if you look at um, black labor markets, and you know, you can break it down further, look at uh, black male workers, black male workers under 30 or something, you really did see truly depression levels of unemployment. And so if we're thinking about, you know, how is it that Volcker was able to build popular support for something which involved a like manufactured recession, uh, I think it's really important for us to remember that uh, a a disproportionate part of the cost was borne uh, by Black workers. At a time when there was a general conservative reaction against both not only the New Deal order, but the civil rights movement. Absolutely. And it's, it's hard to separate those things. And, you know, like, again, like Volcker, it's unclear whether Volcker thinks about this much at all. You know, I think there are a lot of, um, this is a story with a lot of unintended consequences, and that that goes too for the third world debt crisis. Uh, there's an interview someone did with Volcker where he basically says Africa was not on his radar, you know, in 1979 <laughs> or 1980, um, which is wow. It's a blind spot, but in a way, it's also like okay, he wasn't he wasn't setting out. He didn't say like okay, like you know, I am the empire. I'm going to screw like the third world developmental model. You know, I'm going to crush all of the post-colonial ambitions of national liberation fighters worldwide. That was more incidental for him. <laughs> incidental. You know, the U.S. The U.S. Central Bank is like this big elephant that's just crushing a lot of stuff underfoot, some of which it knows about and some of which it doesn't. And, you know, that may go for, um, for Black unemployment too, but even if we don't think there's individual bad intentions, there's still a, a sort of way that the, the Central Bank is, is structured to, it has a really good representation of financial interests, right? Uh, they, they work closely every day with bankers. And to some extent, the Federal Reserve itself is a kind of private-public partnership uh, in which private banking is is well represented. But there's no like labor representative sitting on the, you know, the Fed committee that makes decisions about interest rates. There's certainly no representative of the African-American community. There's a there's a historian uh, named David Stein who's really, you know, shaped my thinking about a lot of this and has also um, you know, been involved in activism, which is which has helped to lead to the the sort of current new conversation. And uh, what what David Stein's work really reminds us of is that uh, the Volcker shock comes. It sort of marks an end to a, a really a, a big, widespread, um, well organized movement uh, centered in the Black Freedom Movement to guarantee full employment. 
So two years before the Volcker shock, uh, Congress actually passes something called the Humphrey Hawkins Full Employment Act, which is you know, notionally supposed to commit the government uh, to restoring full employment and actually includes a, a mandate for the Fed uh, to keep to target unemployment as well as inflation. Right. So there's a there is a social movement victory, which leads to legislation, which will supposedly, you know, force the Fed to take unemployment into account uh, when it's making policy. And that social movement had been led by uh, stalwarts of the Black Freedom Movement. You know, the, the Humphrey Hawkins Act gets its name from its co-sponsors, one of whom was Hubert Humphrey, but one of whom was Augustus Hawkins, who represents South Central Los Angeles. And so has a kind of really uh, front row view to the, the crisis of unemployment, you know, among uh, Black Americans living in, in the nation's cities. Uh, so there is this movement and the Volcker shock is, you know, directly or indirectly response to it. One way in which it's, it's a direct response is that Volcker knows that the Humphrey Hawkins Act sort of in some sense can, mandates him to think about unemployment, but he just ignores that side of the mandate. Uh, and so there's a, you know, in the late 1970s, we see there are there are these opposing currents, but they don't, they're not able to capture state power in such a way that would actually limit what the Federal Reserve could do or not do. We often describe the New Right Coalition as one that unites big business and the religious right. But is this anti-inflation coalition, in a sense, the material basis for the New Right? Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question, a big one that gets at the, you know, the, the big questions of historical materialism. Uh, I would say that the anti-inflationary coalition is is the the material basis for this and you know the work of someone like like Melinda Cooper in her book family values remind reminds us that you shouldn't make a clean separation between the the kind of the the cultural conservatism and the economic base and I'll I'll just give you an example which is that take someone like Milton Friedman right who we know is part of the anti-inflationary consensus right his whole thing is about limiting the growth of the monetary supply he hates unions you know all these things but we think of him as like a a classical liberal, a libertarian, you know, he's a secular Jewish, you know, figure, uh, not Pat Robertson or someone. But even someone like Friedman, when he talks about what's bad about inflation, will say that, you know, a society with inflation is a decadent society where people don't think about the future. And the, the sort of symptoms of this that he sees include a kind of- Where people aren't disciplined into making personally responsible decisions. Which includes sexual morality, right? So even for someone like Friedman, the sort of, you know, the malaise of the 70s, mingles, you know, the rise in the price level with a kind of collapse of old fashioned, you know, sexual morality. And if that's true for Friedman, you can think about it being much more true for someone who actually is an evangelical Christian. Uh, so these things, I think, mingle in interesting ways in which, you know, the need for discipline is, is at once something you're doing to the labor market, but also you're, you know, doing to unwed mothers on welfare and to hippies and all these different people who had sort of been able to somewhat, you know, slip from the, the, the bonds of, you know, traditional bourgeois morality in the 60s and 70s. And I will link to my interview with Melinda Cooper in the show notes. It's a really good one, and her book is excellent. What about President Jimmy Carter's ideology? How did the leader of a Democratic Party that had for so long embraced full employment and until quite recently embraced full employment as a core demand come to so readily embrace austerity? Yeah, I mean, it's amazing because you think about you know, just to sort of zoom out for a second, you know, if you've ever taken a political science class or, you know, talk to someone about this, there's sort of this like just golden rule that politicians hate recessions, that they'll do all kinds of stuff to like to not have recessions, even to the point of being irresponsible, right? So, you know, this idea that they'll juice the economy before an election. And Carter is just this like staggering exception to that where he, he appoints Volcker knowing full well what he's going to do. 
Uh, and then he stands by Volcker as he does this, you know, induction, inducing a recession in an election year, right? So the, you know, Volcker's appointed in like August 79, the shock starts in October 79. And, you know, the election is like a month later and only once, like in an extremely mild way, does, does Carter even question anything that Volcker's doing? So there's this really kind of big question of like, like what the fuck was he doing? And like, why, why wasn't he more sensitive to this? And, you know, I think one way into it is to think about Carter as an individual. He's not connected to the kind of like labor liberal traditions that had sustained someone like Hubert Humphrey, you know, a sort of like a more classic New Deal Democrat. Carter comes out of the, the New South. And, you know, as a New South governor, he's kind of into a kind of pro-business developmentalism. Uh, he's anti-racist by the standards of uh, the Southern Democratic Party. Of Georgia. <laughs> of Georgia, but not by anyone else's standards. He gets in a lot of trouble in the 1976 Democratic primary by saying he supports efforts to preserve the, quote, ethnic purity of neighborhoods. <laughs> and it causes a huge flap. And actually, he ends up having to, like, rhetorically support the Humphrey Hawkins Full Employment Act, like, to try to, like, contain some of the damage that that caused with Black Democrats. Um, but his heart is never in it, right? He's used to e really easily appearing as a racial moderate just by comparison with Lester Maddox. Right. Even though, you know, this is this is someone who, like, went to Brazil and visited this town of in Brazil, uh, which is full of the descendants of these confederados, like ex-Confederate soldiers who moved to Brazil and like God. visited, visited the grave of like his wife's ancestor who was there and was like, by his own account, moved to tears by how much this town had preserved, like the feel of the old South. So someone who, you know, is like a racial moderate in American terms, but is not especially concerned about the effects this is going to have on black people. He also doesn't really have a good relationship with unions. Um, so he's not concerned about its effect on unions. Uh, and he's a, you know, if, if we want to, follow the Melinda Cooper thing too. He's also an evangelical Christian, you know, so he's not averse uh, to a kind of uh, a gospel of, of um, virtue through discipline. And I think that the version of this that will be familiar to lots of your readers, especially uh, if any of them live through this, is, you know, him sort of going on TV, wearing a sweater and telling everyone to turn their thermostats down. The crisis of confidence speech. The crisis of confidence speech, which you know, sometimes liberals kind of look back fondly on because, hey, at least he was taking the energy crisis seriously, you know, and that's better than Reagan, like ripping the solar panels off the roof of the White House. But Carter was also kind of preaching a gospel of, of personal responsibility and self-denial uh, as a solution to a problem, which was, you know, as, as we know, a much more structural and, and matter of political economy. So there's a number of personal reasons you might point to that Carter, you know, was was open to this. But uh, he was also, you know, under pressure. Um, we, we mentioned earlier in, in the interview that there's a dollar crisis starting around 1978. And so, you know, in some, in some senses, Carter is a hostage to the, you know, the international currency traders who are able to uh, blackmail him into pursuing certain policies by just threatening the dollar. And so there are moments where you can see, sort of clearly see he'll try to do something more moderate than what the Volcker shock ends up being. And then there'll be a reaction in the, in the markets, which forces him to kind of backtrack. So there's, you know, there's individual stories here. And there's also, you know, a structural story where, where Carter's own, you know, whatever was in his heart is not necessarily the, the central factor. Where does Carter fit in then to the story of neoliberalism as it's often told, I think, which has Reagan pioneering neoliberalism from the right and then a neoliberalized Democratic Party under Bill Clinton going on to affirm it from the center left? I am extremely frustrated when I read uh, people like Paul Krugman, who I think is, you know, among mainstream economists, you know, maybe the best in terms of having, you know, since since the years of the Obama austerity term, really Krugman has pushed consistently for fuller employment, you know, for more economic expansion against austerity. But even someone like Krugman, who is now willing to write columns about how great labor unions are, you know, about how we don't really need to worry about inflation, like a really dovish figure like Krugman always starts the story with Reagan. 
And so your readers can look up in his New York Times column on labor unions and why they're good and why it was bad we got rid of them. Krugman cites a, a statistic on labor density from 1980 to suggest that like as late as 1980, everything was okay. And what happened was that Reagan comes in, you know, inaugurated in 1981 and does PATCO and that's the, the crisis. And so something like that leaves Krugman no room for thinking about the role of A, the Democratic Party and people like Carter, and B, the role of central bankers like Volcker, who, you know, Krugman and everyone else in his profession really, really, really still admires. Uh, so I think realizing that this, the story starts in 78 or 79 means that you can't blame it all uh, on Reagan and the Republicans, and you need to seek a deeper explanation. And I would say it means that you need to seek an explanation that is political economic. Uh, so when Krugman, Krugman tries to answer this question, what went wrong, he leans a lot on the racism of Reagan's political base, which, you know, there can be no question that that was an important part of what was going on. And I would never question that. I think we just also need to think that whatever racism there was in American society didn't appear a whole cloth in 1981. And it was also reflected in the, you know, abandonment of full employment policy that like clearly any historian who studies this, whatever their political sympathies will tell you that this, you know, abandonment of full employment, abandonment of full employment happened in 1978 or 1979. And there's a series of things there that you can point to of which Volcker's appointment is just one. So I think it's, it's important because it, you know, it, not just in a way that it's important to blame the Democrats, but just in, in order to get the history right and understand why it happened, we need to understand what were the really deep structural causes that made this a bipartisan policy, not a coup and not the imposition of a Republican Party. I'm Astrid Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, a podcast for people who want to deeply understand the world and organize to change it. That's why you should support the show at patreon.com slash the dig. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. Verso just launched a new subscription service for readers to get ebooks and discounts every month. When you become a member of the Verso Book Club, you receive all of Verso's new ebooks every month, as well as one or more new books in the mail, plus 50% off all Verso books as long as you're a subscriber. To celebrate Verso's 50th anniversary, all member tiers are now at a discount of 50%. Choose between three membership tiers. The Verso Reader tier is a digital subscription for every new Verso ebook each month. Verso Subscriber for one book sent to you in the mail every month and all Verso ebooks. And Verso Comrade for two to three books sent to you by mail every month, plus all Verso ebooks. To celebrate Verso's 50th anniversary, each option is 50% off for your first three months. At this momentous time for global politics, Verso will bring you radical voices that challenge capitalism, racism, and patriarchy, debate the future of the planet, and work towards real political change. Sign up for the Verso Book Club at versobooks.com slash book club. That's versobooks.com slash book club. I want to step back and talk about academic economics a little bit, particularly what role did the neoliberal theory of monetarism and the so-called natural rate of unemployment developed by Milton Friedman, what role did that play in creating this new common sense about how government and the Fed should deal with inflation? And before you answer that, what is monetarism and what is the natural rate of unemployment, so-called? 
So let's let's start with monetarism, uh, which is a you know a way of thinking about the economy and, and particularly about monetary policy, which is you know what the Fed does. And the the key figure here, as as you say, is Milton Friedman, who you know over the course of the the post war decades in the U.S. moves from a you know a kind of academically respected but kind of marginal figure to someone whose ideas are you know very mainstream uh, in the academy and among you know business people and among just regular people like you and me who would have watched you know his PBS documentary and discovered the evils of the minimum wage. And so the the key idea of monetarism is that inflation is just a problem of the money supply, right? So throughout this um, episode, we've talked about you know all the different complicated sort of intertangled uh, real world causes of inflation. You know, they could be, you know, an energy crisis, a collective bargaining agreement, uh, you know, a political standoff, all these complicated things. And Friedman's theory had this, this, you know, virtue of really saying none of that really matters. What matters is just the money supply. And if there's inflation, it means that the money supply is growing too fast uh, and that the Fed should limit the growth of the money, money supply. And so it has this like sort of beautifully simple uh, lesson. And it's sort of, you know, it starts from that basic definition of inflation, which we talked about earlier, uh, which is that it's just too much money chasing too few goods. And the slogan that Friedman comes up with to kind of, you know, sell this uh, monetarist idea is that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. So he really emphasizes the central bank as the site of anti-inflationary policy, as opposed to any other kind of uh, government intervention you could have. Which, just to put a little asterisk there, is fascinating given that neoliberals believe that the market needs to be protected from the state, but in the case of monetarism, believes that fundamentally and inevitably the state is pulling the strings. Absolutely. And that's that's something that <laughs> se- it separates Friedman from the kind of more intense you know, libertarians who are like sort of... I mean, all you know, if you if you probe any libertarian thinker far enough, you find things that, that they think the state should be doing. But this in particular was a fault line between between Friedman and other libertarians because he really did see a role for the, the Central Reserve as a kind of planner, right? Like it doesn't necessarily seem that way at first, but the idea that the whole level of economic activity and things like inflation and, and employment and output should be determined by the Federal Reserve, like setting the monetary supply in the right way, is a kind of thin version of economic planning. And it would bring Friedman into conflict with like some more libertarian economists when he would, like in his analysis of the Great Depression, he thinks that the depression was caused by the Federal Reserve not expanding the money supply enough. So Friedman is sort of honest enough to admit that this goes both ways. And in some cases, you should have monetary expansion, which is really a kind of stimulus. So there's a way in which, you know, Friedman, for all of his, you know, like libertarian activism is is also someone who accepts a a big role for the government. And the big role is controlling the money supply. So what connection does that have uh, to what we've been talking about so far in the interview? The short answer is that monetarism provides Volcker with his stated rationale for the Volcker shock. Right. So Volcker is appointed in August 79, but we say that the Volcker shock started in October 79. And it starts with an announcement uh, that Volcker makes following a meeting of the Fed's Open Market Committee. And the announcement is that Volcker is going to target the growth of the money supply instead of targeting interest rates. So before you could imagine that the Federal Reserve made policy by saying, all right, interest rates are at 5%, but there's too much inflation, so we'll try to get them up towards 7%, right? That'll be one way of tightening money, focused on interest rates as the the instrument of that policy. Now Volcker says they're not going to do interest rate targeting anymore. They're going to target the growth of money supply. Um, So, you know, this, this quarter, the money supply grew by... 20%, but there's inflation, so we're going to make sure it grows next quarter by no more than 10%. That's a different kind of monetary tightening focused on the the growth of the money supply as the instrument of policy. And that is essentially what a monetarist like Friedman would prescribe. 
So in his sort of stated rationale, Volcker is becomes a mon embraces monetarism, and this is a huge you know victory for for Friedman's school of thought. Now the reality of what Volcker actually thought he was doing is is a is a good deal more complicated. Uh, he was never a kind of doctrinaire monetarist. In fact, Volcker was to his credit, I think, skeptical of uh, sort of simplistic. Uh, schools of economic thought of all kinds. You know, he hated a kind of simplistic fine-tuning Keynesianism. He was also never a monetarist. He's a practical, a practical central banker, uh, not a sort of theoretician. Uh, and in fact, he confirmed later in interviews that he was never, um, he wasn't sort of moved to induce the Volcker shock because he had suddenly become a convert to the idea of monetarism. Uh, so then why did he do it? Uh, the answer is actually really interesting. He said, this was, you know, this was suspected at the time, but he has confirmed in later writings and interviews that monetarism provided him with a kind of political cover. Uh, now let me explain what that means. Um, I said that, that Volcker replaced the management of interest rates with the management of the money supply. And he did this because he knew that if the Fed said it was targeting interest rates and then interest rates went to the highest point they'd ever been in history, people would really blame the Fed. You know, they'd say all of a sudden uh, I'm trying to borrow money to buy a car and they're selling me I'm going to have to pay 25% interest on this, like fuck Paul Volcker. And so he knew that by, by focusing on limiting the money supply, which would inevitably have the effect of raising interest rates, he would put a sort of like, like buffer in between the decisions that he and the Fed made and the consequences on the market. You know, they'd say all we're doing is limiting the growth of the money supply. It's the market that's pushing interest rates up. Uh, and so it's really, you know, this is an example of how Volcker was a, a really canny politician and why we, we should think of him as a political actor, not just a kind of technocratic central banker, because he he knew this and, and, and he did this. And the, the, you know, the sort of final confirmation of this, this sort of um, instrumental or, or practical monetarism is that in 1982, the recession is really getting too deep in a way. And it starts to have all these bad effects, including uh, triggering these third world debt defaults, like in Mexico, which pose huge problems for uh, the international banks, which are precisely Volcker's big constituency. So here's a moment where his you know, noble experiment in killing inflation actually starts to conflict with the health of the US financial system at a big level. And what does he do? He backs off from the monetarism. Uh, he stops the money supply targeting. He eases up a little bit. And from then on, he's not really even presenting his choices in a monetarist framework. And uh, if you look at commentary from the time, Friedman and his followers are really upset about this. You know, they, they see correctly that Volcker is abandoning monetarism and they say it's going to be a disaster. It's going to bring back inflation. Uh, but it doesn't, which confirms both that Volcker, you know, was not really a, a died in the wool monetarist and that the monetarists were not like at least totally right about the causes of inflation because Volcker's abandonment of this uh, did not lead to the, the return of inflation. And the so-called natural rate of unemployment, this is a Friedmanite innovation that becomes, I would say, more normalized and mainstream than monetarism. That's exactly right. Um, so it's also an idea associated with Friedman, but as you say, it has more staying power. Um, so what's the idea here? The idea is that the natural rate of unemployment is an answer to this question of like, what is full employment really mean? Because when we say full employment, uh, we almost never mean 0% unemployment, right? At different points, governments have different targets. Uh, even in the kind of heroic days of, of American Keynesianism, the Lyndon Johnson White House was, you know, aiming for something like 4% or, you know, maybe at the limit 3%. But there was an idea that unemployment never really goes to zero. So the natural rate of unemployment is a kind of intervention in this debate of like, what is the actual target for employment? And the way that it answers the question is to say that there's a level of unemployment in the economy below which you will cause inflation to increase. Right. So you also see 
the natural rate of unemployment is related to an idea called the non-acceleration, non, it has a terrible name because they wanted the acronym to work, but it's NARU, N-A-I-R-U, which is the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. And these, these ideas are different in some minute respects, but the idea is the same, which is that there's a level, um, level of unemployment below which the economy cannot go without suffering damage. And one form that damage will take is inflation. So economists will then try to estimate what is the natural rate of unemployment for the economy and then use that in order to guide policy. So say you think that the natural rate of unemployment is like 7%, then the Fed, uh, if they see unemployment approaching 7%, uh, will start to tighten policy because they sort of know that if you go below that, if you go to 6.5, you're going to start to pay for it in some way, probably inflation. And as you say, this has a long, long uh, life that lasts after the 80s, after Volcker, uh, and long after people have stopped taking, you know, sort of strict monetarist ideas seriously. And just to give you an example of this, in the 90s, Janet Yellen, who was then, uh, you know, she's now the Secretary of the Treasury. Uh, before that, she was Jerome Powell's predecessor as, as head of the Federal Reserve. And in the uh, mid-90s, she was just a member of the Fed uh, Open Market Committee. So she helped uh, to make interest rate policy under Alan Greenspan, who was then the, the head of the whole thing. And in the mid-90s, as unemployment approaches 5%, Yellen, like, Yellen personally visits Greenspan in his office and says that they need to raise rates because like the economy is headed for 5%. And that's what she thinks at the time the natural rate is. Uh, so that's an idea that, you know, even Yellen is still thinking in the 90s. She's still thinking it in the transcripts, if you look from 2015. They're still saying, um, you know, in 2015, they're sort of dealing with this, the really slow recovery from the 2008 uh, recession, which has just been dragging on and on with the economy technically expanding, right? The recession is over, um, but it seems like really like slow. And so the Fed is, at that time is starting to experiment with like, okay, what if we take a more expansionary position on monetary policy? But as late as 2015, at least, they're still thinking that this means that the natural rate of unemployment has changed, not that we need to give up on this doctrine altogether. They'll say, ah, like, perhaps we haven't been expansionary enough. We thought the natural rate was 6%, but really it's 5%. So we should take a more expansionary position. They weren't saying like, ah, uh, you know, this whole idea is, is bogus. They've, mo they've moved much closer to that now. And I think if you look at like Yellen's and Powell's statements since about 2016, they've come much closer towards rejecting the idea. But like, we can say that the idea guided policy, at least through the second Obama administration. You sent me an article by Robert Pollan that he wrote in 1999, The Economist, Robert Pollan, that argues that Friedman's idea of the natural rate of unemployment upon closer inspection conceals a Marxist or Koleskian truth. That's Polish, Polish economist Mikhail Koleski, pardon my pronunciation to Polish speakers out there. Pollan writes, quote, according to Friedman, what he terms the natural rate of unemployment is really a social phenomenon measuring the bargaining strength of working people as indicated through their ability to organize effective unions and establish a livable minimum wage. It, explain this argument. How does neoliberal monetarism, according to Pollan, just restate in mystified form the Marxist idea of the reserve army of the unemployed? And what does that, and what does that reveal about the mystified premises of neoliberalism? Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you asked this question because, uh, you know, this is one of the ways I think that, that um, you know, people on the left can begin to find a way into this, uh, you know, this mainstream economics, which might seem off-putting or, or even just irrelevant. Um, and so what is Pollan saying here? Let's, let's start with, you know, just the idea of what the natural rate of unemployment is, right? We said that 
it's a point below which, a point of unemployment below which uh, there will start to be pressure on prices. There will start to be inflation, and we might then ask the question: ask the question, why? Like, why is it that lower unemployment will lead prices to rise? And the answer, you know, both if you just sort of start to think about it for yourself concretely, or if you like really dig into what the mainstream economists say, is that uh, lower unemployment increases workers' bargaining power. Uh, workers' bargaining power means that wages will rise, and uh, a rise in wages at a certain point will lead to a rise in prices. Right. Um, so there's a there's a chain running from uh, unemployment, which is like too low or quote unquote too low, uh, to an increase in workers' bargaining power and to inflation, which is a problem. So then you know you decide that unemployment has to remain at a certain level so that workers don't demand too much and that you prevent inflation. And this is, you know, like I put it that way and it sounds like a conspiracy, but this is just all over the Federal Reserve, you know, transcripts. And I quote some of them uh, in the piece I wrote for Phenomenal World, but you could find a million more of them if you wanted. Uh, there's a really, you know, just direct sense that this is how things work. And, um, you know, one example that became somewhat famous is that in the 90s, Alan Greenspan was sort of, he was, te he was testing the limits too of how far unemployment could go because he he was willing to at least think that maybe the natural rate had changed. And Greenspan posed the question, what is it that has changed uh, that allows us to have lower unemployment without inflation like we saw in the 70s? And his answer is that workers are discouraged and insecure. And he just says like, you know, he quotes uh, studies that ask workers like, are you worried about losing your job? Do you feel confident asking for more in your job? He quotes these studies as evidence of worker insecurity and says very clearly that worker insecurity is the reason why um, you know, we don't have to worry about inflation quite as much as we used to. And it's not just people like Greenspan. I think, you know, I also sent you a, a piece by someone uh, from the Economic Policy Institute, EPI, which is like a solidly left, left of the Democrat, from the left wing of the Democratic Party think tank, where he says just like very frankly that like inflation can be caused by workers having too much power. So there's a, there's a widespread idea that goes basically across the mainstream political perspective um, that workers' bargaining power at a certain point becomes a problem. Yeah, and once again, hegemony, that, that someone in EPI of all places would restate a premise that's so hostile to everything that people on the left and labor are fighting for. And if you wanted, you know, if you are really, if you're a really hardcore Marxist, you might say, this, this gets back to Pollan's idea of a kind of convergence between Friedmanite and Marxist thinking, you know, you might say that, that the consensus is right, like that actually at a certain point, workers' bargaining power is a problem for the system, you know, and if you're, if you're far enough to the left, your response to that is that the system needs to give way. Um, but if you don't take that perspective, then you say that the workers' bargaining power needs to give way. Yeah. Pollan writes, quote, economists have long studied how workers' wage demands cause inflation as unemployment falls. However, it is never the case that such demands directly cause inflation. This is true by definition, since inflation refers to a general rise in product prices. Workers, by definition, do not have the power to raise product prices. Inflation happens as unemployment is falling when business owners respond to workers' increasingly successful wage demands by raising product prices so they can maintain profitability by passing on their increasing costs. But as you suggested in terms of how class power plays out, indeed, businesses do indeed pass on wage increases as higher prices to maintain their profitability. So in cases where inflation is in fact wage-related, even though it's driven by capitalist profit-protecting response to wage increases, not directly by wage increases, what should the left position be? Should our position be that inflation is fine or inflation is sometimes indeed a problem, so we should demand that the government use some sort of other tool 
to manage it. In other words, do some left policies under capitalist conditions indeed risk sparking inflation or even hyperinflation? Yeah, that's the million dollar question. And it's the reason why I'm frustrated with people like Krugman or with this, you know, analyst at the EPI for, I think, not facing this question squarely, you know, because we really do need an answer. I think in the short run, I don't see a lot of evidence of really serious uh, inflationary pressures and most observers don't. So we should sort of stipulate that, you know, it's not an immediate problem, I think. But if we get what we want, if we get fuller employment, uh, I think we can expect that at some point, workers' demands will cut into profits. Like if we don't get that, we're not getting what we want, right? So we can say that if we ever get the policies we're fighting for, there'll be some pressure on profits, which are by historical standards as a share of income really high, right? So we should be eating into those. If that happens, the businesses that can raise prices will. Uh, and then we will be back in this situation. Like, I can't tell you whether it'll happen in five years or 10 years, but we will. And then what do we do? A lot of people on the sort of center left still say that we're not there yet, but when we do get there, the solution will just be to raise interest rates the way we've always done. So clearly, I think the people who are you know, to the left of the EPI need a better answer for that. What is the answer? I think you, know, you would have to start to think about making price and profit uh, the object of public policy. Right. And again, we said earlier that that sounds really foreign to us now, uh, but it wasn't you know, for a long time. If you go back and look at the World War II example, which incidentally is the example that you know, people on the center left are now using of why we can have an expansionist economy that helps everyone, right? You know, there's a, you know, I think a really good statement of this view uh, in the New York Times op-ed section a while ago by uh, J.W. Mason, you know, an economist I've learned a lot from and from, from Mike Consul, who's at the Roosevelt Institute. And they, you know, they lay out, I think, like a really strong case for, for the, you know, the best version of this expansionist turn. And their example is the World War II economy, you know, during which, um, you know, incomes rose and the economy expanded, even as, the, you know, the federal deficit reached record levels and sort of, you know, it proved all these naysayers wrong. But if you really go back and ask what made the World War II expansion possible, like there was a centrally planned economy in which there was, you know, an excess profit tax, controls on prices, uh, controls on wages. You know, there were some elements of that policy that we would we would question as as leftists. You know, there was a there was a no strike policy that the CIO enforced against workers, although that really couldn't stop there from being wildcat strikes like every day. Um, but you know, there are various parts of the policy. So I think if we want an alternative to raising um, wages, we have to start. I mean, to raising interest rates in response to too much wage growth, we need to start thinking about making price and profit uh, the object of of policy. And you know, if we want to get even more kind of you know, this this is this seems so distant from the present moment that it almost sounds like science fiction, but it's actually history. In 1945 through 1946, there's a big UAW strike against General Motors, and the demand that the UAW makes of General Motors is that they offer like a you know a pretty sizable increase in wages to the auto workers without raising prices. Right? They say we want the raise, but we don't want you to pass it on in an inflationary spiral. And GM, of course, says, well, of course, we can't do this, right? Like, if we're going to pay you more, our profits are going to go down and we'll have to raise prices. So then the, the, the UAW person who's leading the strike, Walter Ruther, says, open your books, like, show us your profits, like, so that we can actually see that this wage increase would, like, be such a problem for you. And of course, GM refuses to do that. They take out full page ads in newspapers around the country saying that this is basically, you know, Ruther's demand is a step on the way to socialism. And the UAW gives up the demand. They can't win it. And from then on out, you do have this, this you know, uh, spiral where a wage increase for auto workers will lead to an increase in the price of the next next model year car. But that's protected by the black box of the corporation. 
Yes, right. So, the, so there's a, there's actually a sort of idea that collective bargaining then can only focus on wages, hours, benefits, working conditions, and that something like prices and profits are, you know, just like completely outside of the realm of collective bargaining. But if we want to think about the kind of horizon of struggle that would point towards a, you know, a better alternative, it's that moment of the the 1945-46 GM strike where the UAW says, actually, no, like we make cars, and it's part of our interest um, that. The price of cars not be too high, especially if you know the profits are there to pay for it. And so, you know that that idea, which was fairly mainstream, if never like successful in the 30s and 40s, the idea that prices and profits uh, have to be a, a, a you know a, an appropriate target for collective intervention, whether that's through collective bargaining or through government policy. I think that's the kind of spirit that we would need to recover. Before we get any further, we've mentioned the guy a few times, and he's rather important. So I feel like I should ask, what does having leading in Ayn Rand acolyte Alan Greenspan running the Fed from 1987 to 2006 for nearly 20 years with almost no dissent as far as I'm aware from either major party. Where does that all fit in? If I recall correctly, he was known he was known for keeping interest rates at rock bottom levels and so blamed for the housing crisis. Yeah, Greenspan is like as you as you suggest a, a hugely important and somewhat, you know, mysterious figure. He's a He's a hardcore follower of Ayn Rand, right? Who like really like close friends and like Ayn Rand was at his um, nomination ceremony or something. Yeah. You know, so like, a, you know, like a even a word like protege would probably be putting the relationship mm-hmm. too, too lightly. And, you know, Ayn Rand and 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 uh, Greenspan in, you know, at least into the 1960s, Greenspan like Rand thinks there shouldn't be a Federal Reserve, right? So you can see even a difference between that and like the Milton Friedman position where there should be a Federal Reserve that follows a fairly strict rule about the money supply. No, like Friedman, I mean, Greenspan and Rand think that there shouldn't even be a Federal Reserve. So the whole there's a whole world historical irony in the fact that Greenspan then himself comes to, you know, inhabit the commanding heights. And I think, like I said, somewhat mysterious, I think he would say that if someone has to be in charge of the central bank, it should be him. You know, the, the kind of way that liberals, you know, I remember when I was at, um, when I was in college, they were, you know, talking about bringing back ROTC to Columbia. And, you know, the kind of liberal militarist argument was like, ah, if there have to be, you know, military officers, they should be people who've read, you know, the great books. And it's that same kind of like that, that rationalization where it's like, we have to do it so that worse people don't do it. So where does Greenspan fit into the story we've been telling? Or else we wouldn't have an intersectional CIA. So Exactly, right? So the, the strategy is is, is, is paying <laughs> off. Um Greenspan is Volcker's successor. Uh, he in 1987 he replaces Volcker um, as head of the Federal Reserve, and he's 100% uh, supportive of what Volcker had done. You know, he he has a lot of praise for the Volcker shock, um, and that makes sense because you know Greenspan's kind of like deep commitment is to something like the gold standard. And if we're not going to have that, Greenspan says Volcker offers like basically a, a sort of surrogate for the gold standard because uh, he limits. You know, he's limiting money in a way that is functionally analogous to limiting it based on the gold supply, even if it's not literally, you know, tied to bullion somewhere in Fort Knox. So Greenspan is definitely a a supporter of Volcker's policy throughout sort of, I'd say the first like six, six six-ish years of his term, um, also practices fairly hawkish monetary policy. You know, when we say hawkish here, we mean keeping interest rates high, uh, slowing down economic activity because um, Greenspan is not sure that uninfl- that inflation has been totally contained yet. You know, we now look back and we know that Volcker was the turning point, but at the time people really thought that inflation could come roaring back at any minute. So if you look at Volk, I mean at Greenspan's first um several years, uh his policy is is very similar to Volcker's and a way to think about how that worked concretely is uh there's a recession in 1990 
And there's a sort of like 2008, there's a very like drawn out weak expansion after that. That's when the phrase jobless recovery starts to be bandied around. Um, and we know also that, you know, in the 1992 presidential election, Bill Clinton benefited from the fact that the economy was really bad. This is the moment when uh, James Carville says it's the economy stupid. And, you know, that election is in 1992, which is like after the recession has already ended. But because, you know, largely in part of Greenspan's Volcker-like policies, uh, unemployment is very slow to fall even after the recession has ended. But around the mid 90s, um, you start to see a turning point in, in Greenspan's approach. And like you say, he becomes much more dovish, uh, keeping interest rates low and encouraging further economic expansion, uh, even when people like Yellen at the time are telling him it was time to tighten money. And so Greenspan actually lets um, money become looser and he lets unemployment fall until, you know, in around the year 2000, uh, unemployment is actually below 4% for the first time since the Vietnam War. You know, so like Greenspan is in a way a... a in anticipation of this new dovish turn in Fed policy, which is another reason, you know, I see more like continuities than than people who think there's been a sudden change. You know, Greenspan himself was already experimenting with this. But I think to get back to what we were saying earlier, Greenspan is still certainly a, a devotee of the natural rate of unemployment idea. And so he may think that uh, for institutional reasons, the natural rate has, has changed and is now, you know, maybe even allowed to be 4%. Uh, but there's no question that if Greenspan saw any uh, prospect of, you know, worker empowerment or, you know, a rise in the wage share that they would push back, he and his colleagues would push back. And that's, you know, that's clear if you read these transcripts, um, you know, really through the end of Greenspan's term, there's very, um, the transcripts show a, a close, a close focus on, um, on union negotiations, right? At a time when practically, you know, probably everyone in the media had stopped paying attention to what happened in collective bargaining, you still find, you know, in 2006 or something, the Federal Reserve discussing, ah, like, what is the latest UAW contract? Like, how good or bad is it? Is it a reason to, to be concerned? Uh, so, so Greenspan, I think, is a, in some ways a, a direct ancestor of the kind of Powell model in which we're allowed to experiment with lower unemployment, um, but there's still an assumption that if, like, this were to lead to worker empowerment, then we would have to reconsider what, what we were doing. You just mentioned that Greenspan saw the Volcker shock as a next best substitute for a gold standard. Where does central bank independence play in to this? Because when there was a gold standard, say in the late 19th century, the politics of money were heavily and publicly politicized by the populist movement and then William William Jennings Bryan's cross of gold. To what degree do we need, is it important for the left to re-politicize money? Something that, you know, in various ways, obviously you're trying to do we obviously see MMT advocates trying to do that all the time, other leftists. Where does that all fit in? Repoliticizing money or, you know, put a different way, um, you know, forcing people to recognize that money has always been uh, politicized is hugely important for the left, you know, not just as an intellectual project, but I would say as a practical one. Um, and we can think about that by going back to the gold standard. Uh, you know, we can ask, what is it that, that led to the end of the gold standard, which, you know, throughout the late 19th century and, and into the 20s was really a, a fairly effective way of fighting inflation at the expense of workers, right? What brought that to an end? And the answer, according to, you know, the most sort of pristinely mainstream account, which is, you know, Barry Eichengreen's uh, Golden Fetters, which is, you know, a really an excellent historical look at, um, the gold standard and its collapse, someone like Eichengreen will be very clear that the gold standard ended because of political pressures. 
um, and particularly the growth of labor unions and the uh, the mobilization for World War One between 1914 and 1918, which both uh, it, it, it empowered workers by leading to a tight labor market in a lot of places, but it also just made it um, because workers had sacrificed so much in the war, it made it harder for uh, their governments to then say, "We're going to make you pay the cost of." adjustments in in the money supply. Uh, the years around World War One also saw like the extension of universal suffrage for the first time in a lot of the capitalist world, you know, which we forget, but like there was a big uh, extension of who could vote. And an economic historian like Eichengreen is very clear that it's this really, this expansion of democracy uh, in the form of voting rights, but also trade unions that makes the gold standard untenable. The gold standard did not come to an end uh, really because of intellectual arguments, although those play a, you know, a key role in sort of the way the process works. But in the first instance, you know, even a sort of mainstream economic history account would say that the gold standard was ended because of political and social pressures. Uh, so I think that it stands to reason that if we want to like really reshape the rules of money and the politics of money today, it will happen uh, through similar kinds of movements and pressures, but those movements and pressures have to be guided by some vision of, of what the problem is and what the solution would be. And, you know, I think maybe, uh, you know, an important note to touch on before we end is that to a lot of listeners, uh, this discussion has probably sounded relatively technical. You know, I think you and I have discussed that we both are somewhat outsiders uh, to this, you know, world of, of monetary economics and, you know, by no means experts. I think despite the way it might seem off-putting, it's really important that people try to, you know, start to think about it. And we have examples uh, from history of times of extraordinary popular participation in this kind of discourse, right? So you mentioned the populists. And if you go back and look at populist newspapers from the 1880s, 1880s and 1890s, there's just like, you know, millions of ordinary Americans, you know, farmers, industrial workers, housewives, um, you know, reading and debating about monetary policy. And there's a really popular book called Coins Monetary School, which is a kind of of like pamphlet on the stuff, which will, you know, like sell just like countless numbers of copies and become really popular. So I think we should not be fatalistic about the idea that this has to be a, a recondite or an esoteric topic. You know, there've been moments where it was hugely popularly, you know, influential. And I think we should really hope for and, and try to build a moment where, again, we have a mass kind of collective democratic discourse about monetary policy instead of leaving it to the so-called experts. A big change from the 1970s to now is that today, financiers and owners of assets, traditionally, as we discussed earlier, the constituencies leading the tight money coalition against workers, today they're not only benefiting enormously from expansionary monetary policy, but in fact seem to have become fundamentally dependent upon expansionary monetary policy since the 2008 crisis. And this dependence is arguably one of the distinctly new features of capitalism that has emerged from the ashes of the economic crisis. And this means a lot of things. On the one hand, it means, as you write, quote, if asset owners now have their own reasons to resist tighter Fed policy, the cause of full employment may have gained an awkward but powerful ally. But on the other hand, that means that the left and labor are supporting expansionary monetary policy that is also priming the pump of a stock market boom that is fabulously enriching the fabulously rich and also fueling this massive and regressive housing boom. So what, how should we think about all this? Yeah, it's really complicated. And I, you know, it's the kind of thing I'm surprised that I haven't seen closer analysis of in the business press. You know, you, you read, you read uh, fairly frequently about the, the idea that businesses and the markets are, are anxious about an increase in interest rates and like don't like it, you know, and whenever this, the Fed signals that they're going to continue being dovish, that's good for the market, right? And if there's fears that they won't, that'll be bad for the stock market. I have not seen a lot of like good mainstream analysis of, of like what that means for the kind of longer term politics of full employment. 
there's somewhat more discussion, I think, on the left. And there's definitely a school of thought, which I think includes, you know, the economist Robert Brenner or the economic historian Robert Brenner, whose work we've discussed uh, elsewhere in this interview. And, you know, in Brenner's interventions in New Left Review, there's a sense that, you know, this whole, the whole sort of orgy of low interest rates is a, is a regressive phenomenon because it's fueling asset price inflation and, and keeping alive these companies, which in some sense, you know, shouldn't be kept alive. And you, you see that version of that idea, you know, on the left and also um, in somewhat, you know, more just liberal circles, like, you know, the New York Times had a story the other day arguing that the, the easy money policy has been a contributor to inequality. I think I tend to be closer to the the alternative view on the left, which is that tight money would not be good for the popular classes, including the working classes. You know, if you think about the effects on, on anyone who has debt, you know, you don't want um, interest rates to go up. And if you think about the effect on the labor market, you don't want there to be unemployment. So, you know, I would stop short of the kind of, there's a sort of left-wing liquidationist view, which is that it would be sort of good to like drive up interest rates to sort of both to, to, you know, weaken asset prices, but also to drive out of business some of these like zombie companies, which are, you know, so indebted that in some sense they shouldn't really exist. I, I hold short of that view, although I do think that it's the question of asset price inflation and the connection between monetary policy and inequality is, is a hugely important one. Um, but I think, you know, the same way that historically the left has demanded full employment, even though full employment can be good for business profits, you know, I, I don't think that there's reason for the left to support a, a hawkish turn in central banking. Although we should, I think, you know, I think what we should do is just think about, okay, what does it mean that this is such a contradictory situation? And, you know, does it mean that on the medium and long-term, you know, horizon, we would have to really uh, restructure institutions if we wanted to both have full employment and to reduce inequality? I mean, it does suggest that something highly dysfunctional and weird and contradictory is going on with capitalism. Absolutely. But in a way, it's an old contradiction, which is that under capitalism, uh, full employment and the well-being of the, you know, the working class has always been hostage in some sense to uh, returns to the capitalist. It's sort of always been true. And it's the, you know, it's, it's part of the, the material glue that, that holds capitalist hegemony together, which is that like a capitalist crisis actually hurts poor and working class people a lot. And so then they have a, a sort of interest in a stability, which ultimately depends on, you know, capitalists finding returns that they find satisfactory. So it's a, I'd say it's the latest sort of um, rearrangement of a, you know, an institutional dilemma that has faced the left, you know, forever. That's always been true, but is it not new that that finance seems to be permanently dependent upon zero interest rates. Yeah, that's new. Historically, you know, we would have seen a, a you know a conflict between financiers and say industrial capitalists about how expansionary policy should be. And I, as as you say, I think like the new and and sort of poorly understood part of the puzzle is that there's not really any big hard money constituency, right? So if we think about the 1890s, uh, there was a hard money constituency so powerful that they like invented the modern corporate funded campaign, outspent Brian by, you know, many fold dollars and like won a huge, you know, election victory in 1896 that defined the next 30 or 40 years of American politics. In the 70s, there was a hard money constituency, you know, powerful enough to build support for the Volcker shock. Today, what is the hard money constituency? You know, it seems like low wage employers who like are, are troubled by the possibility of, of wage increases and like economists who are upset that no one's listening to them anymore. Like I don't see a lot of other big constituencies for a hawkish monetary policy. And that's, as you say, a, a brave new world, I think. Does this alongside so many things about Trumpism suggest that the Republican Party's current effort to remobilize the middle class anti-inflation 
constituencies of the 1970s against Biden by pointing to modest wage hikes at Chipotle getting passed on as a tiny increase in the price of burrito bowls, that this isn't going to work? Yeah, I didn't know Republicans... I didn't know Republicans ate burritos. <laughs> no, burrito bowls, bowls. It's low carb, low carb. Exactly. Almost paleo. Um, I think that's absolutely right. You know, to kind of underline the point you make is like Trump himself was actually a big contributor to the current move towards like looser monetary policy. You know, he was consistently criticizing Powell uh, for thinking about raising rates. So Trump was a kind of early voice, you know, in favor of this dovish turn of the Fed, which led, you know, like at the time, like people like Matt Iglesias were honest enough to notice this. And, you know, you would have like Vox takes, which said that, you know, actually Trump is right about monetary policy. And a lot of, you know, I think people, people who didn't want Trump to win were sometimes surprised by the, how close the 2020 election was. But I think if we want to understand that, we can see that like Trump actually pursued a kind of bastardized program of this expansionary you know, policy, uh, which led to fairly low unemployment, you know, the, the, the pre-pandemic period of, of 2020 and 2021, and which revealed that even among Republicans, there's like a, you know, a hunger for a more dynamic economy, a tighter labor market. Uh, and so I think, as you suggest, there's, there's so far seems limited evidence of a, a backlash constituency, even in the Republican Party. And that would be true, like even str- more strongly, if you factor in the fact that business, the business constituency of the Republican Party is also not eager to see rates rise. Is this also the political economic context of GameStop and Wall Street bets, an acknowledgement that wealth creation has become so centered on finances dependent relationship on central bank monetary policy and the every man desire to get a piece of that? Absolutely. And you can see, I think in the, you know, some of the political response to that reflects this kind of the, 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 the disorientation the left has in this new world, right? Because the sort of, you know, I don't know, there were some tweets from people like AOC sort of defending the small Robin Hood um, investors against the big hedge funds, you know, and almost suggesting like the terrain is now so thoroughly financialized that the left position is a kind of like populist uh, investors block rather than a kind of anti-finance block. So I think it's, you know, it's absolutely both an example of the terrain and, and sort of how much work the left, have, the left has to do in terms of figuring out where where we stand here. You pointed me to this interesting 1996 article by Dean Baker, Robert Pollan, and Elizabeth Sard on the role played by the Vietnam War in tightening the labor market in the late 1960s. They argue that while the conventional wisdom is that the war spending, quote, engendered uncontrollable and debilitating inflation, it in reality also contributed to an enormous advance in social and economic progress by creating an almost fully employed labor market. That's their words. The tragedy there is pretty obvious because this domestic economic progress was accomplished by spending spending that was dedicated to the mass murder of Vietnamese people. And this wasn't the U.S.'s first experience with military spending-led economic growth. It was World War II that ended the Depression by mobilizing the economy in a way that the New Deal never did. And this wasn't, of course, because the production of bullets and bombs or whatever have some sort of inherently superior multiplier effect, but because war alone in American history, war alone has been able to produce the necessary political will to spend at such high levels. In fact, under LBJ, Vietnam War spending dwarfed war on poverty spending and the Vietnam War itself both made it impossible to spend much money on the war on poverty because it took up so much money. And it also ultimately because it was such a disaster, it helped destroy the political coalitions that made the war on poverty possible in the first place and really helped destroy New Deal liberalism. 
What can we learn from this history of military spending-led economic stimulus? And do you think we can create the sort of political conditions today to spend a ton of money in a planned way on goods and services that instead of being life-ending, are life-enhancing, say, by dealing with the climate crisis? And in doing so, creating a tight labor market that increases the labor share of national income, all of this great stuff at the same time without war. Yeah, I'm really glad you asked the question because, um, you know, the, the, the idea of military Keynesianism is, is, is one I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, and as you, you know, as you sort of suggest, it's already, you know, it's already clear that, um, you know, in calls for the Green New Deal, I think a lot of advocates have realized that they're really talking about something less like the New Deal and more like World War II, which actually, you know, did more to overcome the, de- the depression and to restructure the American economy than, than the New Deal did. So what, you know, what is called for, I think, is a, is a kind of economic equivalent of war. Um, the question is, is, can we get it? And I think it's it's kind of interesting in this regard to think about the the initial Biden stimulus, which was really by historic standards quite large, you know. And so I think one way to read the you know the ARP Biden program is as a you know a preliminary suggestion that there is more possibility for you know a kind of giant peacetime spending than there had been for most of the second half of the 20th century in the U.S. On the other hand, I think you can think about a kind of hard version of military Keynesianism and a soft version. You know, the hard version is World War II or the Vietnam War, where there's a shooting war. Um, But there's a soft version uh, where it's sort of the the generalized threat of an enemy that leads to this unlocking of the, you know, the coffers um, or the unfreezing of the money. And so like the classic example of that is um, after Sputnik goes up at the end of 1957, which is also happens to be when the U.S. has entered into a fairly deep recession uh, that continues into 1958. In the wake of Sputnik, you see a, a big increase in government spending, um, both on things like ICBMs, but also in terms of like education and stuff. And so that's sort of an example of this technically peacetime stimulus, which is still in some deep sense motivated by an international rivalry. And I think you can apply that lens to the Biden program, which you know all the insiders in his administration tell us is motivated by a fear of competition with China. Right. And so, you know, the, the, the reason that, that Biden is willing to think about things like industrial policy uh, and maybe a green energy transition is somehow linked to this intensifying rivalry with China. And so there the gamble is, can you sort of just have this uh, off screen enemy providing a, enough of an impetus for government spending without a real war? Or will it sort of, uh, you know, raise the risks of an actual war? And, you know, if you're thinking historically about that question, a few years after the Sputnik thing, you get the, you know, the real war in Vietnam. And so there's a, there's a risk that the gun, you know, the gun on the wall in the first act will have to go off in the third. And so one of my big worries about the Biden program is that it's, it's so tied to this so-called new cold war with China uh, that it may play some role in, in actually encouraging the intensification of those, those uh, tensions to a point where we see the hard kind of military Keynesianism replace the soft kind. Well, Tim Barker, thank you very much. Thanks, Dan. It was really fun talking to you. Tim Barker is a historian of modern capitalism and an editor for Descent and Phenomenal World. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, at the best of times, an increase in wages means only a quantitative reduction in the amount of unpaid labor the worker has to supply. This reduction can never go so far as to threaten the system itself. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes 
every week. Usually, this July and August, every other week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. It was recorded at WBRU in Providence. Our communications coordinators are Izzy Olive and Tamuz Frankel. Our senior advisor is Thea Riafrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. Same on Facebook. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe if you're not doing so already. And if you could, please take a moment on iTunes or wherever to leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you telling people you know about the show, why they should listen to it, and what not. Please make propaganda for us. Thank you. And please do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge.